Happy Bone Tomahawk and a merry dick nose to all ye listening out in podcast land. <laughs> this is I Like to Movie Movie. My name is Dan Scully. My name is Garrett Smith. And uh, thank you all for tuning in. There are yes. so many exciting things in the future for uh, I Like to Movie Movie. Sure. But one of the things that we thought about doing this year, since it is 2017, yes. this is the 10-year anniversary of 2007, which is kind of a, a benchmark year in movies. And we've done a few movies from this list before. Well, I thought about that, yeah. Yeah. We did Children of Men, Children of Men, which was an excellent flick yeah. from back then. And um, but uh, our guest is rolling his eyes. Not not a Children of Men fan. <laughs> no, Children of Men's excellent. Okay, okay, good, good. <laughs> well, that's the voice of Dan Santelli. Yes. Uh, he was here for our L episode. Returning and, guest. Uh, so, how are you today? I'm doing well. Dan Garrett, Bone Tomahawk, gents. Oh, oh, thank bone you, Tomahawk, no ladies bone and gents tomahawk, out there in the audience. Yeah. And I raise your Bone Tomahawk and send back a, a dick nose to you, sir. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Did you ever find out who that guy was? No, I was. I was. Dan's been investigating. Yeah, I've been. Every time I go to the movies now, I walk past that house <laughs> and I slow my roll. And like the other day, I was like, you know what? I actually think maybe he's better living as the dick nose in my memory. <laughs> but then I thought, no, I got to see it. I got to know. Yeah. I must know, That's so some, I keep passing it. It's this, something too absurd to like, you know, not at least delve further into. Understand. I think it's time to get a private eye. I'd rather see it again and find out that we just both had a shared hallucination <laughs> than to than to not see it again. After tonight's movie, I'm starting to fear it's going to plague us for the well, rest of our that's lives. The thing. So that's, that's the perfect segue. <laughs> so the movie that we're doing uh, was 2007's best movie, in my opinion. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know where you guys stand on that, but uh, uh, David Fincher's Zodiac. Yes. Uh, I am super excited to talk about this. I, th- I was thinking about this, so I did a big uh, poll on Facebook this week about everybody's favorite 2007 movie, which it turns out everybody has like a totally different one because there were that many good movies it's a great in year. Yeah, it was an excellent year. I mean, the big obvious ones are No Country for Old Men. Yep. And there will be blood. Yeah, and I think there the will runaways. be blood is where I come down on my fave 2007. Mm-hmm. That's I love that movie. Uh, Your fave 2007. That's my fave 2007, <laughs> bro. Uh, I, but it's also maybe the movie I've seen the most from 2007, so that could possibly influence that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, you know, you can't really judge the worth of a movie at the time it's like released. No, so yeah. I mean, I have to be honest. For at least for me, you know, my 2007 list has maybe the order has fluctuated. Although I will say that the the certain movies that have been on my list really haven't changed much. Mm. It's just that yeah. some, the further we get away from it, I think Zodiac, which for me, alongside Carlos Regattas' film, Silent Light, uh, those two are my favorite films from that year, at least at that point. Yeah. Uh, they were both actually, it's well, Carlos Regattas's, uh film was number one, not at the time 2007 ended, that's because we didn't get it until 2009. Oh, there's uh, always but, one. But yeah, but that, yeah, but you know, your lists change, but you know, that I think now, since we've gotten about 10 years away from Zodiac, at the very least, looks like the very best American film from that year. Yeah. Although oh, There Will yeah. Be Blood is very close behind. No Country, of course. No and, Country's uh, great. And I'll stick up for, I think, the uh, wonderful, much maligned Richard Kelly film, Southland Tales. Oh, don't I still have to get through that. I, I, I like tried watching it a couple of times and and just like fell asleep. You know, it was I'll like, just say that my go-to karaoke song is always "The Killers." All these things I've done, and it's been that uh, since long before Southland Tales <laughs> came out. So that 
became a very special moment for me. We're getting very old. Hot Fuss is 15 years old oh now, isn't it? God. Yeah, I think oh so. my God. Something like that. Yeah, it's something like I can't. I think I'm, it was summer 04, but I can't quite remember. I'm also so. just looking back through movie movie episodes. We've done Death Proof, which was a 2007 That's, movie. Yeah. That might have been my favorite like theatrical experience of 2007. Oh, it was yeah. Grindhouse. Mm-hmm. That was uh, the first movie I ever saw at the United Artists Riverview. Oh, really? Yep. We went to the midnight show, and we were like, oh, it's going to be huge. And me and uh, Kevin, former guest of the show, we yeah. got there, and we were two out of maybe four. 15 people. We're like, oh, oh yeah. no. I'm pretty sure it was one of the first movies I saw up here at the uh, the Pearl here in, oh, uh, nice. in North Philly. Oh, yeah. going to the Grindhouse of the Pearl. That's what I'm Did saying. Did you at least man. get a good audience? It, yeah, it was all right, but it was also small. It was like okay. smaller than I expected. Yeah. For listeners out there who may not know, going to uh, see a movie at, well, rest in peace, the Pearl, because now yes. it's called an AMC, an AMC Broad North or something. I'd say that yeah. the crowd who comes in is still very much the same. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, Changing the sign does not change the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the best things that ever happened was when we did an episode on um uh what was the the black mass black mass yeah. and towards the beginning of the movie there was someone with a baby oh god and so we're like ah <laughs> this might be the crowd where we're gonna have to just deal with the baby yeah. but the crowd kind of started to revolt and we're like hey, get your baby out of here get yeah. it out of here get out of here uh garrett even went out and <laughs> told w- one of the guys uh, kudos to you because i i wish Wait, i had the balls to do this that this is the best part of the story by the way i walked out and i said to an usher a female usher i said hey i think there's a woman there's a wo- or there's someone with a baby that is like screaming and has been for the first ten. And before I can finish my sentence, she goes, "Oh, that bitch is here again!" And she like turned on her heel and ran towards the theater. But here's the, my favorite part: is that whoever had this baby walked out with the baby uh-huh. and then walked in like five seconds later, no baby. I don't know what they did with that baby. And and on, and honestly, I didn't give a fuck in the moment. I was like, "You could have thrown it in your damn trash." And like now, I feel a different way about that. Yeah. But at the moment, it was just like, "Good, I hope he killed the fucking thing." I didn't hope he killed it, but I wanted to watch Black Mass. She uh, <laughs> she threw it out of our moving theater. Yeah. And <laughs> oh, good old times with the Pearl. You know, I actually wasn't at this particular screening, but I know a friend who went and saw Star Trek there, and I believe there was a standing ovation at the moment when uh, Tyler Perry showed up in that movie, if <laughs> oh, I remember correctly. Of course. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I will say, yeah, the Pearl's just a great, is a really great, maybe not a great place to go to, like, actually watch a movie if right. you're going to try to, like, you know actually watch it but it's a great place for a crowd i mean if you go oh, yeah. to say any horror film there because oh, yeah. you'll get you'll get the drunk temple kids you'll get you know the philadelphians and then you know maybe you'll get you know i've i've actually heard some jerseyites people go there because have any have any this gets on a complete tangent here <laughs> but have either of you heard the difference between the camden accent and the south philly accent side by side um know. no no okay i I'm not going to do a uh, impersonation right here now, just because I suck at I'll doing r- I'll impressions. Run with you. I can do the Philly one pretty good. Well, oh, that's right. Yeah, well, well, do do your talk about talk to me asshole line, and then we'll yeah. Don't even fucking start with that shit, dude. <laughs> fucking assholes, yo, Eagles, <laughs> number one, fluffy Eagles, dude. Yeah, I'm getting a fucking pretzel. <laughs> just I like that you've got don't, seven words. Don't that you don't can... even start, dude. <laughs> yeah. don't, yo, but but. <laughs> don't even start. That's that's Philly. Oh yeah, it, well, <laughs> the, the Camden accent's more or less the same, but it's got like a more weird, like li- like monotonous draw. It's like we come over here from Camden. Mm. You know, I can't remember. You went, you went. Yeah, you sound ca- Canadian. Canadian. I sound like yeah. Canadian. <laughs> yes, yeah, as I said, audience, I'm terrible at impressions, so Did I'm making Camden a fool out of myself. Or Camden. Oh yeah, no, come no, on down Camden. to Camden. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, great place. Great place. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, we're too, okay, we're getting like, way <laughs> off topic here. So, uh, yeah, was this about Zodiac, I think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, before we get started, yeah. we should just do a quick little bit of yeah, housekeeping. Please. Of course, you know you can find the show 
uh, on iTunes. I like to movie movie. You yes. can uh, find us at uh, we have a Tumblr at I like to sure movie do. with the numeric two. That's right. Uh, on Twitter at I like to movie. Facebook.com slash I like to movie. Please That's send right. us reviews and um, you know interact with us. Yeah. You can even email us at I like to movie at gmail.com. That's right. We want to hear what you want. We want to give you what you want, and we want to do what we want, which is. Give you what you want. What is good? Okay. Well, real quick, shout out to uh, uh, Volcano Vinyl, another uh, uh, Philly podcast uh, who just threw a shout out at us last week. Uh, yeah, thanks I, for that. Yeah, and uh, I gave uh, their show a listen, and it is real great. They just did an episode where they listened to I think Warren Zevon's fourth album, uh, and they just they spend the podcast listening to it while they talk about it, which is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mostly the reason I'm bringing it up is they do a cool thing that I think we should try out, which is uh, if you leave us a five star review on iTunes this week and tell us a movie to review. Review, we'll pick one of those and we'll do it. Oh, I Only love it. Only if we leave a five star review on iTunes. So we'll look at those next week. And uh, if somebody leaves a five star review with a movie in it for us to review, we'll do it. This feels, this feels like we're holding our audience ransom. <laughs> for I mean, I'm into it. L- listen, I feel the, dirty. I tell people they get. We tell us. We tell them all the time. Every episode, email us. Tell us a movie you want us to review. Do we ever get an email? We never get an email. Leave us a five star review. We'll pick it. I mean, I'm in, I'm into it. Or email us. We'll still I'm do that. It. That's what I'm saying. I'll, I'll throw you one better. If you give us a five star review, I won't kill your family. <laughs> it's this a, there it is. has done a number on you. <laughs> it's great. You're trying to kill <laughs> babies, kill audience members. I'm only trying to threaten to ki- to to kill audience <laughs> members. That's it. I'm not going to do it. You know, it's. I just. I want to threaten to do it for rev- for review. It's for the show. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Reviews. Okay. So ra- so we're okay with ransom now. Yeah. Oh no. I'm always, I said I felt some type of way about it, but I'm into it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you that's know. the way you felt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Folks, they've been good with ransom for a couple times. They just showed me their basement. And there are a couple people tied up down there. So please, <laughs> fans of the show, friends to the show, yeah. tied up downstairs. A big old bone tomahawk to the basement bunnies, and we're going because that's what we call them. And you two, okay. <laughs> I'm one of those Philly houses that doesn't have a basement. Thank God, I'll never be investigated. Mm-hmm. These are all references to the movie we're yeah, going to talk so about that we haven't started yet. Should we do it? Should we, we do it? Do it? It's yeah. a, I feel in. like it, I want, I'm like afraid to climb the mountain. Oh, come because on! Because it's such a long, big, dense movie of, of good stuff. Uh, I, wa- I we watched the director's cut. You watched the director's cut as well, right? Dan? Yes, yes. Uh, I at this point don't even know what the difference is because I think I've only seen the director's cut since my initial theatrical mm. experience. Same. Yeah, I haven't seen the theatrical version since it came out in 07. Yeah. I can't imagine that they're that different. It's they're both pretty long. I think it's a matter <laughs> of five minutes. I don't think there's any sort of rearranging of scenes. I think they may just protract certain moments. Okay. In fact, I I could be wrong, but I think I remember reading that it was just extra beats added into scenes and not whole scenes that were cut out. Fascinating. But don't quote me on that. I need yeah. to go investigate that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They just cut June Day and Rayfield back into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just she's in it for like eight seconds, and it's amazing. I can't believe she's never talked about that on any of the podcasts to listen to that she's on. Yeah, she's really, <laughs> all fifty of them. She's really good in this. Yeah, <laughs> she's in this. I, yeah, I couldn't believe it. No one else is in this. Yeah. <laughs> everyone's in this movie. Well, everyone's in this, but I mean, no one else on that show is in this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where should we start with this first? I think the best part for something this complex would be the best way to approach it from something this complex is to start at the surface and then further excavate. I right. just want to talk about it on the surface level first. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think we should start right where it opens. And I think one of the interesting things about the way this movie works is that it opens like a horror movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. it opens with a lover's lane murder. But what's so ultimately horrifying to me about that scene is that. It has these affectations of a horror movie, 
but none of the actual murder itself are in that heightened slasher kind of way. Right. It's a very cold clinical killing. Yeah. There's nothing pleasurable about the uh, the murder scenes in this. Mm, there's like, no yeah. poetry to the violence. Right. It's just this is what it would look like if somebody unloaded a gun into a car. Yeah. Well, it's got that usual Fincher like sort of style to it. I mean, it begins with that, you know. I mean, I've always thought of Fincher is to be like a his cinema is one of omniscience, mm-hmm. and then there's Alien Three, which kind of doesn't really fit in the whole. But well, that uh, was directed by Alan Smithy, not David Fincher. <laughs> that, yeah, that, yeah, that is true. Um, but you know, you at least see that like you know it opens on those like incredibly. Oh boy, I mean they're not smooth in the way of a steady cam, and they right. don't. And it feels as if like they're dolly shots along the road, but they have a sort of rig- the rigidity of a dolly shot, but with the fix like. It feels like it's locked inside the passenger seat of the car. Yeah, I mean, I I don't remember exactly how Fincher shot. I know you noted it on the documentary, but it sounds almost as if they had it locked on the side of a car, but they also had it going along a a, a dolly track track. just so that you could get the rigidity of um, a dolly. Whereas, you know, when when you have a a camera mounted on a car, even if you may have, like, some sort of counterweights or a stabilizer rig, sometimes it gets a little jittery just because it has to move with the car. car, um, But, yeah, I mean, it's got those smooth glides just going through sort of very normal suburban yeah. um 1970s white it's very suburbia. much observing just like these various like suburban scenarios too mm-hmm. you know it's people setting off fireworks on fourth yeah. of july people going down to the local dr- like well not a and w i think it was mr ed's going yeah. down to the local burger place to get like you know a float yeah people with their dates and stuff yeah. like that it's just sort of a normal it's basically literally is a depiction of normalcy which ultimately becomes destabilized by the perpetrator, the Zodiac yeah. killer. How interesting that, yeah. that being the Zodiac's mo, apparently, yeah, is you know to to destabilize, to just cause this kind of fear. Mm-hmm. The way he utilizes the press is to make normal life seem like there's some wild card out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I, when you were saying about the way that the camera is kind of mounted on the car, uh, to me that what the function that gave to me is during that scene, it does bring you into the car with them. Mm -hmm. Um, We often say like, oh, Psycho made it scary to go in the shower. You know, each of these scenes where a murder happens kind of puts you into a position where you go, oh, man, I've I've actually been there. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that that I've done. And it was just completely harmless. (laughs) I've Mm -hmm. been in a car. Yeah. But it really made that car kind of feel just like a trap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, also, I think he sh- he shoots a lot of that opening with sort of varying between normal lenses, and then there's some like telephoto work. So it has like a sense of ever escalating compression in terms of the mm-hmm. space. I mean, part well, of it's it also opens just with that sideways shot as they're moving down the street, and you mm-hmm. can see the line of houses, and yep. then between each house, you see the fireworks going off, mm-hmm. and then from there. We bring it almost to the driver's point of view as the guy comes up to the car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that functions perfectly to kind of invite us into the car with that guy and then, you know, kill mm-hmm. us. Yeah, well, at least from like a you know directorial perspective, that shot, it begins as like an objective uh, viewpoint. You just mm-hmm. think that it's a car going along a road. And then, of course, when there's not direct address, but then when the girl comes out and comes into the car, then, you know, it sort of like hits the audience that, oh, this may be a, subject, a subjective perspective. Right. So it's sort of toys. And that's something like Fincher does with this movie every now and then, but also with some of his other movies is playing with point of view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about literal point of view in terms of like, you know, who's seeing it is. I'm talking about like basically thinking that the camera is one, that the gaze is one thing, a clinical gaze, and then it turns out to be some, you know, maybe... The, the gaze of a person right yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's really interesting i didn't even think about that the way he like 
he tricks you with his, with perspective. Mm-hmm. He, he uses perspective to kind of like trick you as an audience member occasionally. Mm-hmm. But not to jump too far ahead, but during that first sort of in, like group interrogation of uh, Arthur Lee, oh, yeah. uh, whatever mm-hmm. his last name was, Alan? Alan. Mm-hmm. Alan Arthur Lee Allen. When they interview him, that's where it becomes really noticeable because it starts out as a scene of like, oh, we're going to watch an interrogation. Mm-hmm. And then as we watch the, it shifts to the point of view of uh, what's it, Toski? Mm-hmm. Uh, shifts to his point of view when he's looking at the watch, looking mm-hmm. at the shoe, mm-hmm. and you, but then also at the same time, we'll get their point of view, but then we'll also get a third person point of view of them noticing the watch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, could, and so the way he plays with that is, it it should be unsettling, and yet somehow it's kind of inviting. Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably the scene of, of all the dialogue scenes. That's the one where the camera is taking a much more obviously objective gaze because we rarely intrude except for moments of revelation on people's sight lines exactly. like the camera yeah. never really hugs them you either get profile shots objective shots of parts of bodies people playing you know with hands or stuff like that uh the only time we ever really have a prolonged view into someone's sight lines is when we see that shot the close-up of arthur lee mm-hmm. um well there are there's a handful of i actually really like that scene was kind of my favorite scene in the movie the editing is really impressive in that there are actually a handful mm-hmm. of close-ups on each of the investigators mm-hmm. as they notice the. De- so you're right it's like all these objective shots of the details of like the shoe of the watch uh you get some profile shots of all four of them together but peppered in are these like straight head-on close-ups of each of them as they you watch their eyes as they like dart around and notice things. There's Absolutely. one perfect shot when he crosses his legs and reveals the shoe. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, it's it's, it's either Elias Coteus. Yeah. 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 Uh, just kind of shifts his eyes over, and it's like, it's even less that he's noticing the shoe and more that it's like, I know shoes are a thing I got to check. Like yeah. You see them being the cop machine. Yeah. It's so, oh, it's so yeah. But I think that speaks to, and we talk about this often with filmmakers like Fincher, um, and I always talk about it in the same group as like Aronofsky or um, uh, like a, even a Danny Boyle, where there was a time where their movies were very much, I'm a movie, I'm a, watch me direct the fuck out of this. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, Guy Fight, Ritchie Fight has Club a, is that for know, Fincher. Oh, it's, yeah. it's yeah. exactly that. Yeah. And then, so They're this very is mannered. like, mm-hmm. he's, yeah, and it's, it's using that, that same flash and flare. Um, it really shows up in the, uh, what are they? What do they call those speedboats that the Winklevoss twins ride? <laughs> yeah. What are they called? The, uh, I don't ro- know. Whatever. When they're, the, yeah, when they're rowing, the rowing yeah. is this one crew. super heightened crew? This one super heightened music video scene in the middle of it, oh, yeah. and Zodiac is kind of bridges the gap between his like last ounces of that hyperkinetic filmmaking. Yes. But you know, to uh, things like uh, Gone Girl, where it's almost completely gone, but. Like you're saying, or like we're all saying about the interrogation scene, he's still using this crazy, super active camera, but it's less in the actual camera's motion and more in like his construction of it. Yeah, it's yeah still yeah. that hyperactive thing. I love that. Well, it's interesting to he's see. More refined. It, it, well, if, if particularly if you look at Fincher's um, overall aesthetic or his directorial approach, uh, there seems to be sort of like a a curve around this point, uh, as you would put it. He sort of settles into almost. Neoclassicism is not the right word, but uh, he sort I of know what it means anyway. <laughs> he, he sort of settles back into sort of a much more classical sta- uh, point of uh, classical form of um, of filmmaking. Um, a lot of his it's earlier tighter. films, as it's you put more, it, mm-hmm. like uh, it's just more refined. Because mm-hmm. it, because you know, Fight Club, uh, Panic Room, mm-hmm. uh, which I must, I should, I'll just come out and say it, you know, early on, uh, just to get 
the the skeletons out of the closet. I'm actually weirdly a Fincher skeptic. Um, uh-huh. I'm not the biggest fan of a lot of his movies. I I think Fight Club and um, Panic Room in particular are very actively bad movies. Uh-huh. But you can actually see, you know, it's it's interesting because you know Seven has that Zodiac stillness to it. Yes. Um, in terms of the form, it uh it does have some moments of uh, where he's definitely prodding you but it's nowhere near as it but it's a it has a it's an indicator of things to come in terms of this ultimate return to classicism after uh panic room uh fight club and um oh what was what was the other one he uh, did? the curious case of benjamin, curious case benjamin mm-hmm. Bunny. although i mean granted zodiac was before that although i think curious case does have was a certain classes yeah curious case would have been 2009 zodiac so. would have been 07 so that, that kind of blows my mind a little bit yeah mm-hmm. but yeah it's interesting to see him sort of return back to this form of classicism with Sto- uh, zodiac but also this was when he started to get very interested in digital technology so yeah. he's sort of blending classical movie um very I mean, I think the the visual hallmark for uh, Zodiac, or one of them, is definitely Chinatown. Mm. Um, it has that sort of, you know, it has a you know very classical form of filmmaking, and then you're adding these new modern technologies, which of course were not available to people back in the '70s. Right. Uh, he does, you know, some very wonderful stuff with digital in this movie. I mean, mm. much like. Michael Mann's work and stuff like Collateral or Miami Vice, you can actually see the nighttime sky in this movie. It's yeah. great. Collateral, yeah. What city does Collateral take place in? Los Angeles. Because okay. this this is the first time I've ever really seen San Francisco portrayed in a more like urban aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Because San Francisco, to me, naturally, I think Full House. Yeah. But yeah. but you know, we think of the that one super windy road. We think of the Golden Gate Bridge. We think of Uncle Jesse. We think of <laughs> you know, but you know, we think yeah. of that that imagery. And this, you know. And you said, Michael Mann, this sort of has that like smoky the way that heat is, mm-hmm. where it's just a little bit uh, like it's crisp and and tight, but it's like a little, I don't want to say faded, but um, it, it doesn't pop as much as mm-hmm. something like what I think of San Francisco as. Oh yeah, and and th- this is also sort of a I don't know if I would call the film style in this one naturalistic uh, because there's plenty of expressionistic nuances mm-hmm. which we can talk about more. I mean, there's a lot of use of graphic lighting in the latter part of the movie. Yeah, the but yellow. you know, it definitely uh, it it harks back to it reminds you of like a uh, stuff in Seven, his um, uh, particularly in the way he shoots the Morgan Freeman character in that movie. It has sort of like you know he always shoots him with like a, or not always, but ha- there's a recurring image of him in half light uh, mm-hmm. or three quarter light. You know, either thinking about something sitting in his bed listening to that uh, metronome mm-hmm. like a psychopath almost <laughs> uh, or even you know when he's in the library it's it recalls back to that sort of you know classical form but now since he's working in partial like partial digital form yeah you know the, I think it's interesting here that he's uh, able to adopt the film look with digital so well and so early on because yeah. this was I can't a lot remember of people still don't get that. That still irritates me when yeah. something seems... Uh, that was actually something that Ryan pointed out about Free Fire. Yeah. He was like, this movie would look so much better on film. Yeah, yeah. And it's a movie that looks great, but because of its 70s aesthetic, it just clashes with the crispness of the digital. Yes. And it just doesn't work. This has a 70s aesthetic for totally. a large portion of the movie, and it doesn't clash with that. No, I don't think so. Like The places that it gets noticeably digital are just when there's like 
when you're watching things happen that you're like, oh yeah, well that building is just built now. It yeah, was you yeah. know, he didn't shoot that unbuilt building, it's built. Well, it was it, the wonderful know. shot of the it's like Grand Theft Auto cam of the <laughs> yeah. cab before the cab murder. Yes. And that's great. Oh, it's amazing. And it's, it's, it's like completely a, digital, but you're something about that smokiness to it just makes it purchasable. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I love the idea of like and it's it's the kind of thing that Dan you're talking about where it's like he sort of like immediately saw the opportunities of digital. Mm-hmm. You know, the, those overhead tracking shots of the cars driving, I'm I'm pretty sure are like mostly digital if you know like if not completely digital like very enhanced by digital. It's like he basically takes the idea of like a locked shot that you would normally have actually locked on a car, you mm-hmm. know, but just 40 feet in the air above it. You yeah, know what I yeah. mean? It is locked to the car, quote unquote, in some way, but impossible for a camera to actually lock to the car in that way. It's, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And that was a shot I actually did want to talk about. Yeah. Um, like I, I was actually just looking up on uh, Yield smartphone right here just to check <laughs> in. If I remember correctly, I think the only shots that they uh, the only moments in this movie where they actually use celluloid were for the high speed shots. So okay. that would be stuff like uh, the opening murder scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that, I suspect, is just because they couldn't do the fast, um, not fast, but they couldn't over uh, overcrank um, digital very well at that time. Sure. But a lot of this, if I remember correctly, was shot on the Viper. Um, okay. So most of it is uh, digital, although there are definitely clearly some obvious, uh, there may have been some other like sort of like B, uh, B-roll shots that were done on film. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, that shot in particular of the, uh, go- well, if you want to go back to the idea of omniscience, the sort of God's eye point of view yeah. or the surveillance angle, you know, that's sort of a, re- a return to that opening not the opening shot, but the second shot in the film when we're going down the street in the lateral movement. Yeah. It's got that sort of like lockdown. And, and you you can't get this with any, almost any other. It's got the, it's almost as if they have a dolly uh, track in the sky. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's got the rigidity of going down a track. It doesn't have the yeah, sort of floating nature yeah. of a uh, steady cam. Right. And I mean, although there's stuff in that shot that you can't do at all with dollies. Like there's a moment when the car turns and the camera literally pivots. Yes. It doesn't go. It doesn't sort of like go round a corner. It literally just like pivots a hard right. Oh, it's as if right. it's locked to the top exactly. of the car. Yeah. It makes the exact kind of pivot it would make if it were just locked on the bed. You know, you get those shots all the time in movies where it's like they set up a rig basically on the trunk of a car so mm-hmm. that you're locked on the roof of the car. Mm-hmm. It has the exact same pivot that the car would have if it were turning with a camera locked onto it. Mm. Absolutely. It's so crazy, too. I mean, we'll get into this deeper, but like thematically, the whole idea of going from the God's eye view to, you know, down to the experiential view of it I mean, what frustrates me most about what I love about this movie is the frustration of like, there's someone who knows everything. Yeah, you know, there's someone mm-hmm. who has a close to omniscient point of view of this. They might be dead, you know. Yeah, someone's seen his face, but oh, we just don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that, well I but think I love the omniscient shots because it it just suggests to that thing like, if you were if you were in the right place at the right time, you could know everything, but you don't. Yeah, you yeah, know, it's you could. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that gets into one of the great themes in the movie. I mean, obviously, this is uh, maybe this might be a good time to talk about the fact that, you know, it's curious to be 10 years divorced now from when the movie came out and to look back and see that this was not a huge hit when it came out. In fact, on a $65 million budget, I think it only made $85 million. So with advertising costs, it probably didn't even break even. Right. And you can kind of you can kind of understand why that would be the case. I mean, that's think, a you tall know, order to tell people to sit down for two two and change. Two and yeah. two and change, and watch you know what what was promoted as kind of like a grim serial killer movie yeah. during you know the 
end of Bush too. Yeah. Um, I don't it think that the country was particularly a, interested in something like also that. Also, a story that <laughs> I've never I mean, heard him called Bush two before, <laughs> and I love it because it makes that time in our country's history feel like the sequel to a kind of weird movie. <laughs> it was, you know, it's also I think a tall order to. You were right on point. Uh, sixty-five million budget, eighty-four point eight box office. Uh, I, and I know people like complain. You know, uh, Titanic has proven that this is not a, a worthy complaint you can always make about a movie. But like tall order to tell people to sit down for a movie that they already know the ending to. Mm-hmm. They know there's no answer to. The, you know what I mean? It's one of the most famous unsolved cases in in American history. Mm-hmm. Everyone I, knows they're going to sit down to a movie that they're basically can't be an ending to. Mm. Although to to like you know use those two movies as a comparison, at least you know with Titanic, there's a sense of closure. Right. I mean, they go and expect. Of course, they know the ship is going to sink. Right. And people are going to die, but there's but they a, do know it. They know you that's know that's an ending. Well, yeah, but yeah. also as Celine Dion told them, the hearts will go <laughs> on. So you know that they're at least going to have some sort of happy ending. Now with Zodiac, I mean, you go into that movie honestly knowing that the Zodiac was never caught. I mean, now, of course, there the and this is something we may talk about later on, but it might be good to bring it up uh, here now just as, you know, to get the ball rolling. Uh, I really like how much this movie uh, with Fincher is basically able to conjure up suspense in scenes where you ultimately, where basically you forget the fact that there is no that we do not know who the Zodiac is. I actually right. wrote a note in my phone. I said the movie makes you feel like the crime will be solved, even though we know it won't. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's what sets up the true horror of it is that like you, it be, because of like some of the classical structure of just the way that it's a it's a police procedural. Yeah, we are trained to know that the police p- procedurals end with them figuring it out, like that big clue. Yeah, and then we're never gonna get it. But for two two hours and what's this forty something minutes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You totally feel like it's going to get solved because you keep there will be those eureka clues. Yeah, you know, yeah. like you have a, a, a sort of a, a series of eureka moments throughout, and, and you those eventually eureka moments in like a fiction movie are enough. Yeah, and but it's not fiction. You even get eureka moments that are like eureka moments that reestablish a previous eureka. You know, it's like oh, this is confirming a previous thing that we thought. You know, you get you go down all these rabbit holes over and over again. To the point where you feel like, yeah, where there might be an end to this rabbit hole. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. But also think about, like, you know, it's funny just because this is a movie that also has the rhythm and feel, a narrative feel of a lot of those 70 movies yeah. uh, that, you know, I think a lot of all the President's Men Me when too. I watch this and a lot of other paranoid thrillers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this doesn't have, you know, the government conspiracy angle of something like the parallax view, but it's yeah, able to slide like into that or, or three days of yeah. the condor, but it slides in that same sort of par- paranoia, particularly in the third act. Yes. And well, the third act, it goes into like the conversation almost where he's just, he has to, you know, he's got to figure it out, mm-hmm. but he also has that paranoia of like, Oh shit, my door's open. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Who's yeah. looking over my Am shoulder? Am I involved? Yeah. yeah. It's also just interesting to view how this is more or less an ensemble piece for the first hour and 45 or so. You know, we get equal time with um, Rufalos Tashi, um, uh, oh, Paul RDJ, Avery. yeah, Paul Avery, mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, the character of uh, Robert Ray Graysmith, mm-hmm. um, played by Gyllenhaal in this. Mm-hmm. And then it's sort of, I almost think of this movie, because this movie has a real challenge of trying to more or less not convince the audience that it knows who the Zodiac is, but sort of like create some sort of if not answer, inkling as to who it who ultimately done it right. by the end. I kind of think of Fincher taking a big rock, if you will, and sort of just chiseling down slowly throughout yeah. the movie until he finally figures out that he's going to focus on the Graysmith character, and that's when the whole 
starts to take shape. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. it's also too. It's it starts as an ensemble piece, and then the story almost wears them down to the point where they just leave the ensemble. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, Anthony Edwards just says, "Yeah, you know what? I'm out." Yep. And he's 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 the he's, smartest he's, one of them all. Well, yeah, absolutely. Even yeah. his behavior up until then is very professional. Yeah. And he doesn't have that obsession. Right. He's mm-hmm. able to bow out early. Right. And you know, just kind of slowly filters them down. And Graysmith's just the oddball one who. If just wanted had to go for it, but I yeah. think Edward's character has a taste for it, and he knows that it's either not for him or that it's not good that he persists. Right. I mean, well, and it's his job, mm-hmm. and he wants to do his job, but he puts in a transfer, and he says, "I want to watch my kids grow up." Mm-hmm. I think he's uh, watching how unhealthy it is too. You know, like yeah. he's surrounded oh, yeah. by men that are kind of being destroyed by it, mm-hmm. uh, and I think he he gets out at the right time to make sure he does not become one of them. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Well, as we were talking about a little earlier before we started recording, there's, I guess, an element of male arrogance that's going on through the movie, which yes. is we see three, particularly the the RDJ, Hall, and Ruffalo characters, sort of like three symbolic figures. You have the prickly pragmatist uh, played by Ruffalo. You have the Hall character who's like the awkward idealist, and then you have the flat-out cynic who's a drunk uh, played by RDJ. Yeah. And it's sort of all these people sort of just like combating with one another, you know, sometimes all together, other times it's just one-on-one. You know, I, and the funniest thing is like, a lot of this movie is just waiting to figure out whether or not they're going to get anywhere. Because th- this is also a movie that almost feels as if each step they take, they the mystery just continues to sort of expand and yeah. become even more elusive. Right. And they can't, like, yeah, it feels like they're getting nowhere. I wrote on my Facebook last night that it, this movie feels like a fun house where in each turn you take, it reverts you back to where you started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, uh, Grace Smith's wife has that, uh, has that line sort of towards the end when she's like, I think it's like after she's already left him and and uh she like comes back to the house at one point um to serve the divorce papers yeah is that what it is is that what she's doing i think that's what's in there when it says greg's copy oh Mm -hmm. that makes sense i didn't even think about that what does she say to him though she says something along those lines and he he kind of responds like in like in exactly the way that you're you're speaking about i can't remember what she says to him though i forget what she asks him she asks him something and his response is like a clear cut just like yeah this is this is it for me. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm going down. The, I'm not stopping. Mm-hmm. Well, she said, like, what do you like? What do you want? Yeah. Like, what is it that you want? In the line, he said, I need to look him in the eye and know that it's him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, that is. At that point, an impossible order. Right. And it's like just to be that close. But if he's going to go into this, what she probably views as an impossible task, that's pretty wild. And that, that yeah. speaks to his ego. And it's funny, too, because he seems like such a kind of awkward gentleman. But at that point, he reaches the point of ego where it's like, you know, <laughs> to, to quote Guardians of, the, Guardians of the Galaxy, my love is the sea. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. got to I've got to go. Yeah. yeah. I've got to do that. Wow, it's so fucked up. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, like with with Avery, you end up get like I, one of the things I like about Avery's character is because he is such a drunk and mm. and coked up and stuff. Once the Zodiac threatens him directly, he becomes like a paranoid maniac. And that mm-hmm. makes so much sense to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, like that, it, like that's one of those things where I actually buy. I totally buy. Well, he's into all his. about him. His whole image yeah, is exactly. all about him. And then yeah. when it becomes slightly about him, it just destroys. Destroys him. him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He also too is. Uh, I think it should be noted. He, he's kind of completely unattached. Right. At the, at, at, throughout all of the movie, he doesn't really have a family or any sort of support system besides himself. You know, and I I don't know anything about the real Paul Avery, but you know it speaks to him having burned bridges or whatever. But he's just that guy. He's he's him. Yeah, 
the loner that lives by, I think he lives by the dock in that weird yeah, yeah. quasi, mm. like, you know. Yeah. He makes not, the joke where he was like, I, when, uh, he's like, you don't have all, any of your old files? Yeah. And he's like, I moved into a boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what do you want? Yeah. <laughs> you know? That scene, though, it, it brings up a Fincher hallmark that might be worth talking about. We kind of got there in the realm of the cinematographic process here, but now it might be worth talking about how he uses technology in this movie because, mm-hmm. of course, technology and process are two of the most important themes in a lot of Fincher's Well, they work. refer to the Telefax machine at the beginning. Yeah. The Telefax and, machine. And uh, he's like, oh, we... Why couldn't they just send you the, the uh, I guess it was a mugshot or something. He was yeah. like, well, they don't have a fax machine. Yeah. He was like, well, neither do we. Yeah. Because he, he says it like, yeah, because they don't have a fax machine. Like, mm-hmm. We don't or, have a fax machine either. <laughs> yeah. Or even in the scene going back with Avery on the boat when um, Hall goes to me and when he's all strung out, he's I think he has an Atari system playing yes. on mm-hmm. in playing the background pong. there. Yeah, he's playing Oh, but pong. it's great. He has it set up that neither paddle has hit the ball. And the ball is just constantly going from the upper left corner to the bottom right. And Pong, if nobody hits it, will just keep cycling, yeah, you know, yeah. Pac-Man style from inside and out. Mm-hmm. Which is such a great visual metaphor for he's just yeah letting it go. Yeah. Then makes it much easier for the continuity people to keep. Yeah, that's <laughs> very continuity. true. That is very true. Yeah, but uh, but also you know think of like well you brought up like the fax machine, but also how oh, oh, since we since we see this movie through the long haul. Um, we do kind of see how the technology sort of adjusts over these nine, like 10 years and mm-hmm. how people sort of, you know, use, I mean, not in terms of computers, but, you know, like even even if it's just something simple, this isn't technology, this is just actually vehicles, but even like you see the cars change. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's granted, technology. Yeah, yeah, well, technology, but yeah, I mean, that may not be, you know, that's more of a signif- signifier for, or that's more of a timestamp, yeah. I guess, than anything else. But I like how he sort of uses those to sort of give you the sense of like all, how protracted and uh, this case has become oh yeah he does use the the literal timestamp every now and then mm. but that seems more like just a signifier to keep people noted uh noted about specific important dates well most of those dates pop up on the dates of the murders yeah mm-hmm. you know other i mean if it's a specific date otherwise it's or usually just after a like slight act break yeah where mm-hmm. it's like seven years later yeah you know, this many years later except for that wonderful uh, intermission section. Yeah, that's something that I don't remember, and I wonder if that is something that was expanded Probably. in the director's edition. Mm. Do you know what I'm? Referring oh, you're to? talking about the black screen it when they play black the, uh... and they just play audio cues of songs, historical moments, and just recognizable shit to represent four years passing. Mm-hmm. That's like a really, uh, it's just kind of a bold move. Because yeah. even even we were like, wait a minute, I was did, like, did, did the picture go, go out? Because my DVD mm-hmm. player audio? gets fucked sometimes, mm-hmm. so I was like. <laughs> Wait, is there supposed to be something happening right now? And then it's like four years later. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. But it also finds very like some really really cool actually. They some really like profound ways to timestamp just visually. Yes. One of my favorites is the time lapse visual effects shot of the building being yes. erected. Mm-hmm. I mean, which you know just basically in one shot sort of gives you uh, you know just separates us from you know one year to the next. And, yeah. and Dan and I noted that there's a shot earlier in the movie where he's doing his kind of like overhead god's eye view thing mm-hmm. that passes over the foundation of that building early in the movie where mm-hmm. it's like they they have they've just started digging the hole for that building mm-hmm. and then you know an hour later in runtime we get that shot of I'm I'm fairly certain it's meant to be the same place and even that the we area that it's in is yeah. like decidedly less like civic looking yes mm-hmm. and then it becomes you know more of a modern san francisco yeah, like more yeah. urban well you, yeah well you could take that out we'll use the word that i was going to use modern injects modernity into uh mm-hmm. you know what was before sort of looked at like you know 
a standard West Coast urban um, urban environment. But of course, you could look at that invasion of modernity being something, you know, kind of like, I guess, an abstract metaphor for the Zodiac killer himself, who is, you know, this destabilizer of the mm-hmm. normalcy that we see early on. Mm-hmm. So to me, you know, you could just say that this movie's, you know, a big, I mean, this is a very reductive way of looking at it, but you could say, you know, it's another way of seeing how the times are a change. And mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Another way they about do it. the fear of time, you know, oh, just absolutely. the passing of time and how things change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even just the whole thing too, of just like, as, as that time passes, this guy is still out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and like, even though he is destabilized, like things are still moving forward, but he's in the back of the head. Yeah. Well, if we're going to look at it as a horror film and go further with that idea let's go back and look at psycho which is probably the first modern horror film at least made here in america i mean that movie and peeping tom and eyes without a face came out right around the same time which i think of like as like you know the trifecta of 1960 where horror and pretty much all forms sort of either went full-on modern or that at least there was an invasion of modernity into classical mm-hmm. structures mm-hmm. like you had the element of modern medicine or the surgeon in eyes without a face invading you know was ultimately sort of you know the trappings of a classical poetic gothic horror film mm-hmm. uh, that just happens to be taking place in 1960 then you have peeping tom with the idea of film technology uh being rendered for sort of pernicious use mm-hmm. uh the idea that you know a death captured on film is a death that will remain as a piece of time you know mm-hmm. and it will sort of persist what you movie know, is this again peeping tom by peeping michael tom. powell i've not seen that i've it's never seen that either. absolutely wonderful film it's yeah. uh it's he, psycho of course is, you know psycho and peeping tom it's up in the air which one you could say is better um i i think psycho has the classic status although yeah. scorsese has done a great job and did a great job in the 90s of sort of like helping to revive the uh interest in peeping tom into getting like a full-on theatrical re-release in 99 and peeping tom's essentially about a cinematographer who works in london stage sets who uh actually no he's not a cinematographer he's a he's a second assistant cameraman he's a focus puller um so first assistant excuse me no second is the clapper um <laughs> so first assistant cameraman who's a focus puller who has a flirtations with becoming his uh, a cameraman by the end of the movie and he walks around london with his bell and howl and in the opening we see this in the opening scene so i'm not giving anything away he murders women and photographs their their deaths but what he does do is he puts a mirror uh onto the top of his camera so that they can watch themselves while they die and if you look at it that idea you know you have modern season four of dexter i'm just saying (laughs) they so they bring good one so they bring the idea of modern film technology into capturing a murder so murder isn't just like a moment of time that you know happens like someone gets killed and then everyone moves on film if you want to look at film as sort of a representation or a piece of time that is everlasting that murder is forever imprinted on the celluloid and sort of it can go on and then of course with psycho that's the idea of the modern serial killer just injected in there mm-hmm. you know no longer the mo- there is there the you know the vampire in you know the the garb or the frankenstein monster there's it's not like, a monster anymore. no it's not it's a monster a it's you know yeah. it's it's a normal everyday person shower and get, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. who's just you know the, the sort of pathology of the serial killer is basically pretty much born in that movie yeah. i mean it had been dealt with in other movies but it was more or less hokey mm-hmm. that's the first time where there seemed to be a sense of seriousness well, given it could to happen it. to me and it, and it does happen mm-hmm. is the thing I, I think that's what's so scary about zodiac is like nobody 
Mm-hmm. Like in so many horror movies, you're like, well, of course you're gonna get killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of like in something Zodiac, it's like, yeah, you really could be doing something as innocent as just driving someone home in your cab. Oh, absolutely. But of course, the linkage between Psycho and Zodiac is the randomness of it. Yeah. Now, of course, Psycho unfortunately throws in the towel because Joseph Stefano insisted that they have that scene at the end, as Hitchcock called it, the hat grab scene. That was where the psychologist just yeah, yeah. goes on psycho babble like, for five minutes. That's almost bad enough to ruin that movie. That's why I haven't revisited it, is because mm-hmm. I just. That it's also is not so the weird. only Hitchcock movie that ends that way. There's a couple it's of like them. It's like 10 minutes long. Too. Yeah. It's very weird. There's a couple Hitchcock movies that just end with two characters going, and now that we're here at the end of the movie, let's just recap the entire mm-hmm. plot so we all totally understand what happened. We're clear. We got this. We yeah. know what this movie was about. Great. The end. See ya. Well, that's the unfortunate concession that I think the studios, uh, or at least the, some of the screenwriters, like foisted upon him. Yeah. Because I know Hitchcock did, never wanted that scene at the end of Psycho. Yeah. It was just Stefano, and I think maybe a studio exec sort of just you know twisted his arm into putting it in. They called yeah. it the because he called it the hat grabber scene pejoratively. <laughs> um, but I just linked those two because up until that point, you know, and I still think Psycho is pretty much a masterpiece. I love that. Movie. You do think that you know. The linkage between Zodiac and Psycho is the randomness of these mur- of these murders. You know, you could be anywhere. You could be sitting yeah. with you know your boyfriend or your girlfriend, any significant other, uh, or even by yourself by a lake, and ultimately there could just be someone coming up in a weird black outfit who just kills you. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's completely random. It's unexplained. And I guess, you know, you could see in the grander scheme of thing, you know, and if you go back to the idea of time, how you know the world is becoming much more, I guess. There's more deterministic, you know, yeah. sense of, you know, there isn't the safeness of the 50s anymore. Right. We're moving into a much more cautionary time, um, at least in the in terms of Zodiac yeah. with the 70s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also think maybe we can talk about this. I'm curious at how he uses uh, other visual signifiers to suggest time. There's one that I was curious about. Oh, like about. Donald Logue's mustache? <laughs> oh, well, then, That's a big one. then, of course, the, the turtlenecks is the other thing yes, that I yeah. love in this. There's literally a scene right after it transitions into, I guess it's the 80s, mm-hmm. um, right when it transitions into that where... Uh, Graysmith is definitely wearing the Marty McFly costume. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely wearing <laughs> yep, it. He's got the um, like the life preserver vest on. He's got the the vest, but also even the pattern, the pattern on, on the white the shirt. shirt was it like that? That was not an accident. No. Mm-hmm. And that it's almost to the point. Like if that scene wasn't so muted and dark, I believe it was a nighttime meeting. Yeah. That would be one of that would almost be a bad choice. <laughs> yeah. But like it's a. If you're if you're one of us, of course you're going to be like that's the Marty McFly thing. But yeah. like I think it was on it, purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the one visual cues that did stri- stick out to me last night, uh, just in you could see it as a timestamp, but it's placed so prominently towards the center of the frame that it's unnoticeable. Is the Nixon button? Oh yeah, oh, I didn't even notice that. There's a two shot in the cr- a scene with, uh, when they're at the Chronicle. Yeah, it's between RDJ and Gyllenhaal. Yeah, uh, RDJ I believe is frame right. Gyllenhaal is frame left, and right near the center is a Nixon button. Weird. Now you could see what's that weird as a time it looks stamp. like it's yeah. at RDJ's desk. Yes, and I and what's funny to me is like he's the type of person that could be, and I I don't. This is from an, a kind of ancillary understanding yeah. of what Nixon represented in, at that time mm-hmm. and all that. If he was just a troll that voted for mm. Nixon, mm-hmm. or if it if it was something that he just thought was ironically funny to have at his desk, yeah. right? Yeah, I could also say for me, maybe I'm obsessed with, or maybe not obsessed. I shouldn't say it. Maybe I was fixated a bit on that last night when I rewatched it, just because uh, we're recording this on Friday, May 12th, which is two days after Comey had been ejected. Yeah, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, uh, with our unfortunate. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> uh, commander in chief. Um, 
there's some Do you have trouble of, getting that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I it mean, still I, blows my mind that he that yeah. he's the. That's crazy. Hard to say that. Yeah. Hard, hard to admit there, that out loud. There's something Nixon. You just recorded that for all of time. Mm. Oh, I know. I recorded Every, that for all of time. Everyone I mean, will now remember that he was once our commander in chief. Yeah, well, that is. I mean, I could have been like much worse. I could have just called him a racist, which, <laughs> <laughs> which. <laughs> I think might be true. Um, <laughs> Worst things will, have been said about him on our show. You yeah, can go yeah. as crazy. Oh as no, you want. I know, I know. I, 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 I like to try to stay apolitical, but I think that everyone knows that Trump is a pretty terrible person yeah. and a <laughs> racist, and you know, someone who we should not look up to. So, you know, the it Nixonian just doesn't represent the best of America. No, yeah. which but at is least what should be happening. But at <laughs> least to bring this uh, a parallel with the movie, maybe I was focused on that Nixon, but yeah. just because this weird Nixonian stuff that's been going on the yes. past two days. Yes. Um, so had like a weird odd relevance for me yeah, yeah i mean i don't think it goes much further than maybe being a timestamp for the movie or to maybe suggest something about rdj's weird sure. conservative leanings perhaps mm. um well, that's the thing is that that's what interests me about is that he might actually have legitimate conservative leanings yeah mm-hmm. he also might be just being like how funny is that me the fucking bohemian yeah. motherfucker's got a, a nixon thing on my on my desk haha <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, yeah, I don't know. You might be right. I don't know. Yeah. It's tough to tell. Yeah. I, I, I could see that either way. Yeah, because mm-hmm. this movie is, like, to some extent, uh, follow me on this, to some extent, it's light on character, actually. Yeah. It's like you and I were talking about this as we were watching it, Dan. It's, it's mm. heavy on process, which I love. I love movies about process. Uh, it is an investigation. It's a procedural. So it's, it's more sort of about the case and the facts and, mm-hmm. the, you know, uh, going down the rabbit holes. But that's kind of the brilliance, I think, of this screenplay and and Fincher's execution of it is how much character development we get in their actions as they sort of go through this We don't need 30 procedure. minutes of Paul Avery and no. Robert Graysmith becoming friends. No. Mm-hmm. But when they eventually meet and he's like, you're doing that thing again. Yeah. You're, uh, what does he call it, uh, hovering or hovering looming? Or looming, mm-hmm. yeah. You're looming. Starts with an L. Yeah. And, uh, that's the second time we've seen them right. even interact. Mm-hmm. And the last time it was, hi, I'm Paul Avery, right. shake my hand. And we already understand how much time has passed yeah. and mm-hmm. how and what the relationship what is. What kind of relationship has developed between them. Yeah, exactly. It's so much yeah. better than him just being like, well, we've known each other a couple months yeah. now. I don't like you, but you seem to like me. So yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. If they, it, it's a sly way of getting around that. Yeah. And to go further with film t- uh, with uh, time, if we can talk about film time for the moment, I think because Fincher and the crew sort of protract the movie out to two two hours and 42 minutes and the director's cut two hours 37 of theatrical you were you're in it for the long haul oh yeah and you know whether whether someone finds the movie boring or not is subjective but i like that he puts you in a position where you know even like because the movie you know it's about process and process that doesn't really have much in the way of uh modulation right in terms of like you know major events there's a lot more uh, there's a lot happening in the first hour i would mm-hmm. say in terms of you know the murders occurring the three mm-hmm. main scenes with yep. uh, the lakeside the uh, prologue and of course the lady with the baby on yeah. the highway i mean there's some of that to sort of spike um if you think of the movie sort of narrative momentum or rhythm as a heart rate monitor there's mm-hmm. those That's little not scenes a classical that spike arc, it up though by any by any means, you know. Oh no! It, but that like hour from like the fifty-five minute marker up till probably about hour. F- yeah, there's probably a full hour from the fifty-minute marker up to the hour fifty-minute marker before the movie really becomes Gyllenhaal's show. Yeah. Mm. When you know it's almost just like a a constant line of people, sort of just almost like running in circles. Mm-hmm. And I described this movie uh, last night on my Facebook page rather foolishly, I guess. But, you know, <laughs> and this is a superficial comparison, but this remi- this to me is kind of like David Fincher's Chinatown, yeah. except this is the multi-perspective version that right. Chinatown is. Chinatown's very much tunnel-visioned, single perspective. We almost never leave Jake's... Um, 
uh, perspective of things. We follow right. him almost from every scene to the next. If I remember correctly, I actually don't even think there is one single scene where he isn't at least present in it in some mm. way, shape, or form. Um, but now with this movie, we're sort of seeing people, uh, not not de- not detectives, like it, not privatized, but sort of detectives mm-hmm. going through this whole case, except we're seeing a clash of three different perspe- perspectives. Yeah. And even more than that, you could say, the, you know, the perspective of the public uh, or the perspective of the pseudo-professionals, like mm-hmm. the Brian Cox character yeah. who, you know, m- well, once again, too, even that omniscient in. perspective, there are points where it's almost documentary. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily documentary, but just by nature of being based on a real-life thing, you know, it's not going to have that mm-hmm. classical arc. So you have to, inter- you know, interject those different perspective shifts mm-hmm. into it just to make it watchable. Or yeah. even fate. Is or else it would literally have to be a documentary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that bring, that's two things I wanted to talk about. Really, one is just really quick. This is one of my favorite just setups for any like cinematic story. Is three men of differing ideals attempting to solve the same problem. Mm-hmm. That's the good, the bad, and the ugly. That you know, the Dark Knight eventually takes that on. That's like Heat is a version of that. Like, there's all that's like a classic setup of these three sort of like you know male perspectives. These very kind of like uh, type A male perspectives clashing as they attempt to solve the same problem and the way the different personalities sort of like outweigh each other at different times to get them closer to an answer that might actually work. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, one of the things I really liked that I noticed as uh, I was watching it is like the first hour of this movie is kind of comprised of um, it fades in and out a lot as we go from scene to scene. Mm -hmm. There are like literal fades between scenes pretty frequently in the first like hour. Mm -hmm. Uh, and And it's broken up as... Here we are following the Chronicle and their experience of it. Fade out, fade in on. Now we're following the San Francisco PD and their experience of it. Fade out, fade in on. Here's a murder. Here's two teenagers experiencing the Zodiac themselves. Once you get to the second hour and we're full into the investigation of this, because he took his time to establish all of our characters and sort of individualize them between these kind of like frames, these these fades, we move into a rapid just... Now we're at the Chronicle. Now we're at the PD. Now we're at another murder. Now we're at the PD. Now we're at the Chronicle. And sometimes mm-hmm. information crosses paths between those scenes. Mm-hmm. We just smash cut from scene to scene. And something that's revealed to Avery in a scene at the uh, the Chronicle will just smash cut to the detectives following up on what he was just told at the Chronicle. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a um, high wire act as well, yeah. I assume, because you know, he has this very sort of, you know, I don't want to, we keep using the word classical, but he has a very traditional structure for that mm-hmm. first hour. And then, I mean, you're right about the information, but he almost takes, kicks it into high gear with this frenzied, yeah. almost like suddenly frenzied um, approach to storytelling yep. where he's almost deliberately challenging the audience to really keep up with where the information is coming from, mm-hmm. where it's ultimately leading to, and sometimes he'll even cut off yeah. uh, certain tangents for long periods of time so that when you, they do come about, either they're not resolved or you've forgotten like an important piece of information about yeah. who is who. It's like he's applying his old visual style of hyperkinetic cutting and all that to, and you know, he still has that energy, but now it's in a structural style yeah. as opposed to, you know, an in-lens kind of thing. Yeah. But it's also a form-content relationship, I think, mm-hmm. at least narrative in terms of what, uh, going along with what the ultimate, you know, thrust of this movie is, which is the abs- uh, the obsession the off-screen yep. obsession which drives these people which is really what the movie is all about i think one of the reasons of disappointment uh that people one of the reasons why people were disappointed in this movie on the initial release or some people is the fact that they expected to see a serial killer movie i guess right. whereas mm-hmm. this is basically a movie about the uh 
uh, about the the, well, it's the effects on the people that yeah. that are dealing mm-hmm. with the serial killer. Yeah. Well, how? But the also, but ultimately, how they're obsessed by it, and it yeah. is particularly a a male a, a male obsession. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that could just be not just because there's you know most like, actually no, it is this because most of our characters are essentially white men. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, women are very much at the fringes of it. Not that the movies, you know. Psh- shutting them out it's just that this is a specifically tunnel visioned you yeah. know perspective mm-hmm. of the of these you know of this particular event or this course of time mm-hmm. um although i do think it's really fascinating when you do look at the uh the scenes with people at home and you look at either the uh the presence of the family unit whether mm-hmm. it's functional dysfunctional or almost non-existent like mm-hmm. the non-existent nature of course being rdj who basically clearly lives to work yeah and now that he, you know, he gets to a point where he basically loses his job. Granted, because you know he basically has fed up, you know, fed up and has enough of their shit. Uh, but then you know, see, like you know, there's almost no place for him to go at that right. point. The movie just sort of drops him completely, except yeah. for the one scene when we come back to him in the yeah. bar. Yeah. Uh, and then of course there's the dysfunctionality in the Gyllenhaal home. I mean, mm-hmm. it's funny that even you know, of all the people here. The stickler, uh, the Ruffalo character, is the only one who seems to have a functional family right. life, and yet he's the one. And um, who's uh, Anthony Edwards. And Anthony Although we Edwards, never really yeah. meet his family, mm-hmm. he just says, "I got to go be with them. I'm out." Mm. Although yeah, we he's, do, he's not also one of the most focal characters, right? Yeah, but he's all. He, but he's also kind of the voice of reason amongst Absolutely. the uh, the chief investigators, other than, of course, the uh, the great Philip Baker Hall character. Yes, yeah. Um, but you do see his wife, of course, hug him in that uh, in his final climactic scene, mm. which, of course, you know, brings it back to that idea of like the family unit mm-hmm. uh, the, or the modern family unit, I mm-hmm. guess you could say. And now that I think about I'm going on about this, I guess you could say that there's maybe a, not a full maybe it's not a fully developed thematic element, but there's something going along around the edge of this movie about, you know, modern family or the breakdown of the nuclear family because. Mm-hmm. Divorce clearly comes into play. Oh, yeah. We meet Gyllenhaal saying... Already know, divorced. Already divorced. And then you see basically how his behavior or his obsession ultimately affects mm-hmm. the course of you know him be basically not being able to be a family man. Well, him, yeah. He's basically a workaholic, even though it's not his job. Mm-hmm. Right. But he also seems like one of those people who may have been sold by their parents on the idea of getting a job, having kids, making a family. Absolutely. And sort of went through the motions. But oh, how course, adorable is really... it, though, when he's got his kids helping him solve mysteries? <laughs> yeah. is, and, and they're fucking good at it. That's the best part is that while making they P- are on. While making PBJ. Yes, yeah, making yeah. PBJ. Don't tell your mother about our little project. Yeah. <laughs> oh, excuse me, I just swallowed my own spit. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, makes me want to kill a babe now. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I'll drink my water now and learn to breathe again. <laughs> Uh, I don't know where to go next with this, which is also one of the themes of the movie. <laughs> well, I wrote down this thing that I thought was kind of a funny visual gag that only just speaks to the density of the movie. Yeah. Um, towards the beginning, when it was the first time that the uh, Chronicle said, listen, we're not going to publish his letters anymore. Right. Let's mm-hmm. see what happens. Let's see what happens when that happens. And Jake Gyllenhaal is the first to say, I don't know if this is a good idea. Yeah. You know, what if he follows through on his threats? And as he's doing that, it's comedic that uh, Avery is building a pyramid out of his straws. Yeah. And he pulls back and it's perfectly built. Yeah. And as Gyllenhaal's making his case, uh, Grace Smithwickham is making his case as to like, no, we, we have to publish these letters. It yeah. is important. Uh, Avery picks up the the uh, pyramid on another straw and then just flicks it off and it just tips over and falls apart. Yeah. And it's just mm-hmm. such a great visual metaphor of 
Graysmith watching him going, you you have all of these pieces to build yeah. this case, and you're just throwing it away like yeah. that. Yeah. And it was such a fun little moment. Oh, absolutely. I think it's uh, a great visual cue for it's like a great what's happening cue. there too. Yeah. But it also says something to the like about their character interplay. Like you were yeah. saying about the yeah. strength of that script is that we see Avery as a guy who is completely distracted from what uh, he's saying. He's listening, but he wants to build this little thing. Yeah. But he's also kind of a playful drunk that, of course, because he's been hanging out at a bar for so long, he knows that it makes stirs <laughs> into a pyramid. Yeah. It's just a skill you get when you're hanging out at a bar alone. Yeah. And it shows that whole relationship. And is a neat visual metaphor. That's very fun. Mm-hmm. It is cool. I love that. It's very clever. Yeah. And I like the idea that like Avery does seem like the guy that would, as Graysmith is babbling at him, be able to reduce. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like he's basically like, yeah, yeah I yeah. fucking get what you're saying, kid. Uh, he just reduces it to like, I'm going to reduce it to my drunk man image yeah, of this, yeah. thing, you know, because this is all it is. Like, go ahead, babble at me. But you're just, all you're doing is babbling. All it is is this little pyramid that. We can just yeah, knock it it's over. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's nothing. We don't we actually don't have anything. It right. looks like we do, but we don't. Yeah. And gotta gotta throw props to one of the best moments in the movie when he says, We're getting a drink after work. Yeah. And they go to get their drink and um, he gets some sort of booze on the rocks. Yeah. And Graysmith gets a bright blue, uh, disgusting looking drink. Yeah. And as they're talking, he just interrupts him and goes, I can't, that can't go not mentioned. Yeah, he what is this drink? <laughs> what is it? He goes, well, it's an aqua velva, which is the the blue, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, aftershave. Oh, okay. That's what mm-hmm. that's named after. He's like, it's an aqua velva. You wouldn't be laughing if you tried it. Yeah. Which is such a great representation of his character of just like, no, you have to try things. You have to learn things. You have to get the information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when he ta- he doesn't take a sip, he gulps down a quarter of the beverage. And then and then we fade into cut. both of them completely wasted yeah. and a whole bunch of empty, gaudy aqua velva glasses yeah. on the table. I think that's also one of the best scenes in the movie where he, oh, they're yeah. drunkenly unpacking the case together. And what a great depiction of drunkenness. That, I think so, That yeah. goes too far sometimes. Times and yeah. they're both very. I believed that. Well, mm-hmm. the, I was noticing the whole time that, like, like especially on Jill and Hell's part, like he has a ton of dialogue that is actual important information for the viewer of the movie to understand about like what's happening, and he has to say all of that information in a way that's very clear so that we can all hear and understand it, but still feels like a guy that is like pretty drunk at the bar. He's still getting all the words out very clearly for the audience to be able to understand them, but there's still a little bit of a lilt in them so that they're not yeah, actually, yeah. you know, he like he just nails this like I believe that he's drunk, but he's also like still acting this like this sort of like information for me. It's like mm. this perfect line. It's it's pretty incredible. He's excellent. Yeah. It's it's oh, a yeah. good role for him cuz yeah. he's kind of he's good at playing like innocent and precocious with like this uh Sort of uh, an what's edge. the streak? Yeah, like uh, there's a mania underneath all of it. Yeah, it's like uh, what's the mischievous? There's like yeah, a mischievous yeah. streak mm-hmm. to him, and that's that's across almost all of his roles. Mm-hmm. And uh, in here, it's just used to play. I've met that guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I know that guy. Well, he finds the giddiness in say like the dweeby, uh, obsessed mm-hmm. dork. Basically, I mean, because yeah. he's all, he's basically is you know socially inept and just you uh-huh. know, I mean. He just works by himself. He's one of those people who just feels the need to go up and introduce himself to others, mm-hmm. even though they don't care really about <laughs> yeah. who he is or well, whatever. He's a, he's a, well, they call him at the. He's like, oh, that guy. He's a Boy Scout. He yeah. doesn't smoke, doesn't drink. You know, goes to the library all the time. And then later, I forget who says, like, "What are you, a Boy Scout?" And he's yeah. like, "Eagle Scout." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very proud of this yeah. accomplishment of an Eagle Scout. Mm-hmm. He's but like it, Eagle Scout, first, you know, whatever they call him, platoon or whatever. I don't know what they're called. I'm you, not a scout. <laughs> if you just want to like look at that character from a narrative standpoint, in terms of you know characterization i guess you could say that his arc in the movie is that he's 
stopped being uh is how he develops from being a psychological uh, brooder or thinker mm-hmm. and becomes an a- like an active person yeah. because a lot of that that seems to be the one of the cre- one of the uh purposes of that last third of the movie is the fact that he finally does take charge yes. even if there's sort of a I don't want to say a power element to it, but it almost seems like a a a, a, a power like a power fantasy element, I oh, guess, absolutely. to it because you know, I mean, there's of course that scene midway through the movie where they go to see Dirty Harry, which mm-hmm. is a movie itself that you know t- is uh, takes influence from the Zodiac killings because oh, yeah. of the Scorpio, the Andy Robinson character in that yeah. movie, um, and it's almost as if he's play acting a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's crazy that him and because his view of the case is one that is just from I you know I want to know whereas the cops like they want to know but they also have to be able to get him yeah you know, they actually have to be able, and so when it becomes clear to them that they're not going to get him they tend to back off and the dirty Harry moment is actually sh- sort of where that shift is introduced mm-hmm. because I whatever w- w- there's a whole other podcast oh I mm-hmm. just said a whole other <laughs> there's a whole other podcast about what dirty Harry is advocating thematically yes but mm-hmm. it does make a it does make a showcase of when copping doesn't work, you got to anti copping. Yeah. And so for the cops, it was just like, well, we can't do that. Yeah. You know, we, we actually can't break the rules. Whereas Graysmith is like, well, I don't actually know the rules. <laughs> yeah. and so in the later parts of the movie, it's his kind of precocious naivete that draws mm-hmm. each of them back in to be like, listen, we can't actually tell you this. But if I could tell you this, I'd say this. You know, yeah. you didn't hear from me. Yeah. See, maybe it's because I have a different reading of Dirty Harry is why I sort of. I'm not necessarily they, saying yeah. it advocates that copy. I don't. I don't know. I'd have to see it oh, no, again. But, but it, I, it showcases a hero cop not following the rules. Yeah, but for the Graysmith character's trajectory, particularly in that third act, I think of it as sort of you know a projection of what I guess I get out of Dirty Harry. To me, Dirty Harry is a movie that's about the symbiotic nature between the cop and the criminal, mm, and how they're you know basically you could say that Dirty Harry is essentially the flip side of the same coin right now of course it's because the batman joker thing yeah. over and over but because of course eastwood's magnetism and presence in that movie it elevated the character to a yeah, much more be, mythic figure yeah, where he it was like attractive hero to some extent yeah. Yeah. well it was a tra- like his fascist ethos was attractive to yeah. others and whereas i think siegel uh might have had a different take on sort of like looking at the moral ambiguity right in him uh because like literally if you look at the w- the trailer for that original movie it introduces uh the uh the movie as a this is a story of two killers and one is on the law right. on the side of the law if i remember correctly yeah uh and you could almost look at the Gyllenhaal character as you know maybe the more thoughtful uh introverted version of dirty harry in that right. he's still you know he has the drive finally to go out, but also he has. You could look at him, not that he would kill someone, but he has the sort of like psychopathic. Uh, he has the symbiosis with the psychopathic or pathological mind because he's willing to put himself in ways of danger in order to satisfy this obsession which yeah. haunts him. I mean, right down to the fact that he follows the Charles Fleischer character down into, into the, the basement. basement. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, and he even throughout the movie earlier, he's the only he constantly predicts the next moves of the Zodiac. Mm-hmm. There's like a there's a the moment in this movie every time I watch it that I know it's not going to come to pass, but my brain goes like, wait, is it going to turn out he's the... Because yeah, he like, yeah, right he's back. always like just a step ahead of everybody else as far as like what is the next play going to be on the Zodiac's mm-hmm. part. And he's always right. And I well, think we you're know right. emotionally distant. Yeah. And that's evidenced from the yep. opening frame to the last. Totally. He's 
And like you said, he, and like he's even obsessive. his wife, he takes very much as a matter of of that's just what you do. Yeah, yeah, and he's and he's super obsessive. He's obs- and he's obsessed with this, you know, knowing the identity, which is very much his puzzle obsession coming out. Right? Mm-hmm. He's we know from the beginning of the movie, he's got this obsession with puzzles. He just likes to do puzzles and figure them out and get an answer. Uh, he's like hyper focused on things. I mean, he he definitely is a character that I I, I can buy what you're saying, Dan. Where it's like in uh, you know, in another life or pushed the wrong direction earlier in his life, maybe he is not so different from the man that he's hunting, mm-hmm. you know? That's, of course, a callback to a movie that you guys mentioned last week, like something like Michael Mann's Manhunter, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, one of the first sort of procedural mm-hmm. films that I sort of like that looks movie. into. Uh, also with Brian Cox. With also with <laughs> Brian Cox playing Hannibal Lecter, except spelled L-E-C-K-T-O-R, I believe. That is correct. Um, Lector. Lector. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but sort of that idea of, you know, the uh, the uh, the only reason... In that movie, you know... Oh, gra- the a Finnish only- metal band. <laughs> It'll be called Lector. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like in that movie, how the Graham character is basi- basically, you know, the, the only difference between him and the Tooth Fairy is a... Well, first of all, he doesn't kill people, but he has the same sort of pet, like psych- potentially psychotic mind uh, mm. to him because he's able to basically read between the lines of uh, all these murders and see what real like why the tooth fairy is doing something like that. Mm-hmm. You could, you know, go off with the the Graysmith character as portrayed in this film. Yeah, uh, not saying that this is a representation of him in real life. No, but yeah, in terms yeah. of the way he's depicted in this movie, as you know, he's just working on the right side of not really the law, but you know. In this case, the media. I mean, right. But he's still, like, you know, he has those impulses. Yeah. And that, I guess, is a theme that goes back to a lot of Fincher's movies. You know, think going all the way back to something like uh, Seven, which actually is a movie I really need to rewatch. But yeah, um, that's so good. Yeah, I, I really, really dug it a lot as a kid. The last time I watched it, I was kind of eh on it. Mm-hmm. I think, I think it's a very well-made movie. Although Fincher's brand of uh, self-seriousness and i don't use that movie in general that that term in general is pejorative but right. i just i don't know that that andrew kevin walker screenplay just i don't know without going on a whole tangent here if i can bring up pauline kale for a moment the great uh, new yorker film yeah. critic she once had this idea that uh, i've kind of been very inspired by called the erector set approach to filmmaking and i kind of have that way of viewing a lot of prestige movies or maybe movies that uh sort of are uh very uh, high, uh, well-produced uh, with high production value sort of riffs on sort of very disreputable conceits or ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that gussying up a movie for prestige, it, seem, it seems as if, you know, sometimes it deflates or loses uh, the potency that was at the core of the idea. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just felt that this, you know, beautifully mounted movie ultimately had a hollowness to it. Um, seven, you mean? Seven, yeah, yeah, seven. That ultimately had a hollowness to it. Like, I find that a lot of that's, that same kind of narrative, I get a much bigger thrill out of when I watch it in form of, like, an Italian giallo film sure. from the 70s. Yeah. Just because there there's that sort of, you know, termite art quality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Seven is... Because I think Seven is fantastic. Yeah, well, But I will absolutely do. say that it is... It's 100% a gimmick movie. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's just meant to function as that gimmick. They do the reveal that Kevin Spacey's even in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They do the what's in the... I mean, that says it all. What's in the box? Yeah, and yeah. Then they reveal what's in the box. Yeah. You know, and so I, I, th- I think it holds up on repeat viewings, but it will never match that initial viewing because it does hinge a little bit upon gimmickry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think... I have a feeling that I may come back around to it when I revisit it just because, you know... Um, I think in, especially in, in the shadow of something like Zodiac, mm-hmm. which... 
by nature of the story was already written, can't have that gimmickry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, you know, at least to compare that uh, Seven to Zodiac, I mean, both of them have a character who more or less could be seen as the flip side of the same coin for the yeah. serial killer. I mean, in that mm-hmm. movie, there's, you know, the, the Morgan Freeman character um, and Kevin Spacey are basically two people who are just responding to the, um, the sort of like, you know, I guess you could say vacuousness of modern society mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. see, and except they're doing it in their own, mm-hmm. you know, separate way. Yeah, they're both. They both feel like they're combating like a societal evil. Basically, mm-hmm. um, they just have chosen to combat that in, in yeah. different ways. Yeah, and the line at the end where he says something to the effect of, "I forget what writer he's quoting." He says, "The world is a a wonderful place, and it's worth saving." Yeah, I I agree with the second part. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but yeah, with Zodiac, I mean, I I think Zodiac is the much it is the much better film. I mean, to me, I actually think Zodiac is one of the the key texts of twenty first century cinema Whoa. as we know it thus yeah. far. And just because Certainly you know, Fincher's best. Oh yeah, absolutely. Although I will stick up for I'm a I'm weirdly enough the the other one of his movies that I do really like a whole lot is The Game. And I oh, think the game people, is so much fun. I think people really underrate the game. That I saw that movie like quite a few times as a kid because that was like a USA movie in the afternoon mm, all yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah. But you know, Zodiac to me is like the moment where like everything really clicks with him. Mm-hmm. He's able to sort of you know his uh he's almost put down his gimmickry impulses and i speak as someone who is fine with cinematic mannerism i mean yeah. i love brian de palma and mm-hmm. his movies are you know filled with mannerism mm-hmm. uh, or have mannered gestures yeah but i almost always feel like he's fine he finds a way to either marry them with content mm-hmm. or at least he's deploying form in a very extravagant uh manner in order to essentially either comment on film style or or like you know in his case you know his sort of like ongoing dialogue with hitchcock movies yeah whereas fincher sometimes like particularly in something like panic room which is a movie i really hate <laughs> it, ju- it really just seems like he's fooling around with the toys and sometimes yeah. there is a there is you know uh Sometimes that can be very fulfilling as a viewer. It can be enjoyment. You can get on that wavelength and you can ride the pure, the you know, the coaster of pure style. Yeah. But sometimes with something like that, you just feel like you know, an obsessed, you know, genius craftsman. Honestly, I mean, I mean, he mm-hmm. is a brilliant craftsman yeah. in just the technical sense. With Panic Room, you sometimes just feel like he's. It's merely just a showcase for mm-hmm. him to sort of just flex his muscles, and there's a complete detachment to that movie that I just. I, I enjoy. Pa- I see what you're saying because I I don't love Panic Room. I do very much enjoy it. It's a movie that I think of as should have been a Twilight Zone. Mm. There's a whole bunch of those movies where it's like I love the idea of like you know okay what if we have a Panic Room and what if they're trapped in it you know yeah, yeah. and then that's yeah that's a great setup but doesn't merit two hours yeah. exactly like it, it a good like 45 minute Tales from the Crypt. I'm in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, with Zodiac, I mean, there's there. I mean, he does have moments of uh, showmanship um, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, just like really exploiting his uh, his formal um, uh, his formal wizardry. But then, of course, you know, this is the movie that to me proved that Fincher can be a very good thinker in terms of movies. Um, I mean, I do think that I I, I think that not all that uh, some of the really brilliant uh, thematic stuff in this movie he may have not been aware of, but it's clear that he at least has thought very much about the um particularly the characterization sort of the thematic relevance between 
these men who are obsessed by this ongoing mystery oh, yeah. and how it deeply affects their lives and you see the domino effect. So it feels very thought out and lived in. I think the obsession aspect is the thing that is clearest. Like that comes mm-hmm. across so clear, I think, throughout mm-hmm. the movie that he had to have been focused on that in some way. And I was just happy that it really proved that he was a smarter filmmaker than you know I gave it credit for and basically just proved me wrong because another one of the Fincher movies I really don't like is Fight Club. Yeah. Which, you know, I know P- I know it's a satire and I know, you know, it's supposed it's not vindicating those people's actions right but to me it's like such a literal minded film that to me it just kind of feels like a put on still nonetheless well and we forget he came from music videos mm-hmm. oh absolutely um, yeah. but as, as a music video guy that is all about taking you know a song that already has enough flair you don't need to have anything attached to it mm-hmm. visually and then uh basically making a case for why we've attached a visual yeah. to this so mm-hmm. it's only flair. Yeah. Well, it's augmenting um, the toxic masculinity that's at the heart of that film. Yeah, well, and yeah, and so, and but like I was saying before, with him, he was a very flashy, very present director where it was like, this is a mo- I'm directing the fuck out of this movie. Yeah. Wah, wah, wah. And so to see him still keep that energy, but pump the brakes, not pump the brakes, but to you know, uh, corral that energy into structure as opposed yeah, to yeah. visual audacity. And once again, I always say, like, Aronofsky used to do that thing all the time where it was just the shoulder-mounted camera in the yep. front. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, it's a lot of fun to watch, but, like, it's not going to fit in The Wrestler. Right. You know, it's not, but, you know, you still, I think The Wrestler is still undeniably a, uh, you know, an Aronofsky film. Mm-hmm. Um, Aronofsky when you look by at, way of the Dardens. What was that? Aronofsky by way of the Dardens. Yes, yes, yeah. very mm-hmm. much so. And, um, you know, with someone like Danny Boyle, he does... You know, he's still capable of doing super flair. I mean, Train Spotting too. Highly recommend, by the he way. He does that projection mm-hmm. stuff all the time. It, now. But then we see something where he corrals that energy and ends up using it to uh, layer the whip smart dialogue of a Steve Jobs. You mm-hmm. know, like that's a Sorkin script yep. that he corralled. Now they they do some kind of flash in that as well. But it's so amazing to watch these directors go from just like ah, I'm a it's a, it's the late '90s and I made a fucking movie yeah. to the more classical structure, like you know, like yeah. Zodiac. But I still think that post, uh, well, not post. I think that MTV style was still sort of brimming in visual aesthetics around that time. Oh, so yeah. absolutely. Of course, the '80s it was really big with, of course, Tony Scott, mm. and of course, well, not but even late '90s, yeah. early 2000s still yeah. had a lot. The of that Saw kind of movies stuff. started with yeah. that. That. Just weird music video mentality. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, with the like you know co- like overcranked and undercranked footage and mixing you know yep. sp- various speed formats mm-hmm. and then of course yeah. I will say one of my favorite pieces of Fincher filmmaking, uh, not the girl with the dragon tattoo, but the opening credit sequence to the girl with the dragon tattoo, which is just this weird like amorphous oh, yeah. sexualized bodies in in multicolored latex just be- I, I don't even I there's a million different think pieces that could say how that relates to that movie and I don't want to read them. <laughs> that is just a really cool thing, but I love that it, it was almost to me that was his uh like Sam Raimi's Doc Doc Octopus's arms coming alive where it's like, listen, I've still got what I what you know me for. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. can still make a goddamn music video. Oh, so yeah. that, and then we'll have a nice movie. The, uh, and I actually do like that opening credit scene. And I'm not I mean I I don't think that's a good movie, but I'm not as down on it as some um some people are just because I, I th- didn't I th- care for the book. I think a lot. Oh no, of the I think the book. I think the, the book. I, oh, absolutely no. And and a part of it is that you know as as much as I like the Elizabeth Salander character as mm-hmm. like an idea, I don't think anybody can particularly play her very well, and that's nothing to do with the te- um the lack of talent uh in Rooney Mara or Numera Pace, who are both 
very talented. Oh, yeah. They, but, and they both kind of do their own things with yeah. it, which is but nice. Part of it is just it's kind of an impossible sort of like weird male fantasy. Right. Uh, pseudo-feminist uh, character. Um, it's from a manuscript of an unfinished book of a guy who died of a heart attack climbing the stairs. <laughs> like, she's an unfinished idea. Yeah. But about that opening credit sequence, I kind of think of that as sort of his unused Bond credit sequence. Yeah. I mean, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's got that same sort of graphic design style. But Although in I, his weird, like, BDSM way, it's... Yes. it's it doesn't have the, the soft 60s sexuality of a Bond thing. Mm-hmm. It has a... It has that saw mentality to mm-hmm. it in some type of way, and it's funny because you know with Fincher to bring it back to Zodiac, I mean he's a man who's really known for like a lot of like some of his opening credit sequences. Like think of you know the girl with the dragon tattoo, Fight Club, the has Fight a Club, big one, yeah, and mm-hmm. of course the Seven uh, mm-hmm. yep. uh, opening credit sequence. And here in Zodiac, the opening credits is just you know it's almost as if the movie was the rough. Cut. It's almost as if the rough cut didn't even. Uh, have a uh, credit sequence right in the sense like they just simply just layer the titles over yep you know the movie like just like scenes and it's mm-hmm. almost just like you know an afterthought more <laughs> yeah. than anything which i think is particularly interesting you know again of course you could say it's a reversion uh him reverting back to that sort of like classical mode of you know of filmmaking sort of like you know juxtaposing as we've been talking about the modern technologies yeah with sort of an old Old fashioned is not a great, it's not a good word. And no, I want to use classical uh, again, but yeah. you know, sort of like a much more restrained, um, well, it's less interested in flair and more interested in, in just clean structure, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's presenting also, a story in a way that's digestible and, and makes sense. It's also already two and a half hours long. What's he gonna do? Throw a five minute opening yeah, credit yeah. sequence with techno on top of it? Like, <laughs> well, there's a weird thing that they do in the middle, and it's kind of a montage of a few of the letters coming in, yeah, where it's just, oh, yeah, a, uh, kind of a layered montage where characters so, like, layer the over words the screen, other ones, are coming across but the, the words are there. They do the, a great yeah. shot where Graysmith gets an idea, and the zodiac symbols kind of zooming in on his <laughs> face, yeah. like, and it's yep. a target, you know, and it's. I think that was him sort of leaning into the flash, and actually, that's a scene that I think on its own I like, but felt very weird in this and i don't remember it that could also be something that yeah. was a director's cut edition or tweak but uh, it does feel off-putting i do appreciate it though mm-hmm. absolutely i think one other thing that might be worth talking about is um the way he shoots san francisco in this movie mm-hmm. um just because of course he's dealing with you know a period movie yeah uh but he doesn't give us the usual san francisco iconography that you would like for example yeah. you're going to shoot a movie and say let's say you shoot a movie in london yeah you're going to have a shot of the gherkin and yeah. you're going to have a shot of big ben yeah if you shoot a movie in philadelphia you're going to have a shot of the liberty bell yeah. you're going to have a shot of you know the motherfucking rocky statue the motherfucking rocky <laughs> statue you're going to have william penn on top of city hall yeah. uh, the comcast building the comcast yeah. building mm. yes and 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 of course new york city you're going to have the liberty um, not the Liberty Towers, the Freedom Tower, mm-hmm. uh, or now I guess we're calling it WTC Tower. Um, I, th- I thought it was Empire's. called Trump Tower too. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably will be when he buys that la- that land. I'm just gonna again. call it the Avengers Tower. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everything's gonna be just fine. <laughs> or even, I guess, you could go back to Jupiter Rising with the way they shoot Chicago. Whereas, mm. you know, this movie's almost as if seeing, you know, this urban space, which is, you know, I mean, we don't even see cars going down hills very much. And of right. course, you know, the tell. Um, not Telegraph Hill, but, you know, the hill in San Francisco is, like, one of the major, like, points of any movie that's uh, shot in San Francisco. Every with, San Francisco yeah. movie I've ever seen has the shot from the top of that hill with trolleys oh, going yeah. up yeah. and down. I was, like I was saying before, you, we see it as the full house San Francisco, yeah. but mm-hmm. this is 
much more urban and civic. Well, we, we do get one Golden Gate Bridge shot. I, w- yes. I was just going to bring yeah. that up, which, which is, is like a curious special effects shot too. Yeah, yeah. it's it's mm-hmm. an interesting special effects shot. I, it, it, Fincher's the only guy I would imagine would do. I literally brought that up when it came up in the movie because I think this is what you're getting at. This movie lacks the total like this happens in every movie in san francisco Mm -hmm. the establishing shot from the golden gate right there's Mm -hmm. always that establishing shot of san francisco on the right effect yeah Yeah. (laughs) san francisco on the right golden gate bridge all the way across the screen to the left right the only time we ever get the golden gate bridge in this it's another one of those weird omniscient locked perspectives Mm -hmm. from like the very top of one of the i don't know what you would call them but like the crossbars or whatever up the top and it's very brief it's just like a car going down the the bridge that way and that's it it's the only I time think that had such it. a great effect of making San Francisco feel isolated. Yeah, it sort of suggested to me the idea of just like because I know San Francisco is not an island, right? But it had that suggestion of just like, oh, see that little landmass over there? He's in there. Yeah, he's yeah. in there with mm-hmm. you. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's the, the, he didn't go anywhere. I mean, Ooh. there's there's one very traditional your home establ- is now your prison. Basically. Yeah, ex- exactly, yeah. exactly. Yep. There is Alcatraz. The, <laughs> there is the one very traditional establishing shot, and that's the opening shot of the movie, which is just. Uh, fireworks in the oh, yeah. background mm-hmm. uh, but that's you know, a after- gorgeous shot though yeah. it is I mean, and also, i guess you're right that is from the bridge i think it's it's if it's not directly from the bridge it's definitely like over the bay it, it, yeah. it, it puts you in an area in in a perspective where you can see the full city so yeah. it at least feels establishing but other than that you know a lot of the establishing shots with quotes quotes around that word establishing um are like more like sort of have like are, are sort of like shots that have abstract ideas to them. Like mm-hmm. we already talked about the bit the the um, uh, Tom said the erection, uh, the building <laughs> of the uh, the building of that's that a, new that's, building that's here. The right that's word for that. The erection of that building. Yeah. building. Yeah. We're taking um, it back. <laughs> We're taking it back. <laughs> now, Dan, you're talking about the boner the building has oh, in yes, the middle yeah. of the movie. Okay. Yeah, Dick yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, the big boner that is right in the middle of San Francisco <laughs> there. If ever, if we're talking about like the commentary of masculinity in this movie, it's that. Yeah. yeah. The boner building. Yeah. Right in the middle of San Francisco. Are, are you talking saying that this is a movie about a bunch of dudes wagging their dicks around at one another? I mean, in so much that there's a boner building. <laughs> no, but I mean, in a way, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But if we can go from like, you know, to the way he uses special effects here, it's curious that now we're seeing a man use the tools in the right way. Yeah. Or maybe not the right way, because I don't want to be firm about that, but sure. using them in a way that is sort of atypical of what well, we would expect from a 65. It's not through the ingredients of a, tr- of a trash can. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's... it's I mean, I, I would presume that a lot of those... I mean, the Golden Gate Bridge shot, that is completely yeah, secret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is what it is. Yeah, but what he's but think about what he's using uh, the special effects for. I mean, it's oh yeah, now sort it's of not about aug- a gimmick. Yeah, well, it's not about a gimmick. It's not like say uh, the Transformers, you know, skating down the um, the L.A. freeway. Right. Mm. It's it's more to do with the fact of either at least either putting you in a specific uh, space or augmenting a real location to fit the time as it would look like uh, at that moment. Yes. Because, of course, verisimilitude and uh, a, a certain re- a representation of a certain reality mm-hmm. definitely seems to be something that's a part of uh, Fincher's later movies. For sure. Uh, I mean, Gone Girl has some of that, although that's more of like a, a representation of a human reality. Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. human with quotations around it. Um, th- that's like, in that case, suburbia. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, or suburban complacency, mm-hmm. um, but the, here in this film, like think about how he uses uh, special effects with uh, a. We talked about the taxi mm-hmm. there. 
um, the shot of the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm -hmm. It's less to sort of like, you know, be flashy and just certainly to sort of grant more weight to the image. Oh, yeah. Um, and not it, in a way that's It's more like the way Scorsese uses special effects to mm -hmm. today. You know, the last mm -hmm. like 10, 15 years of Scorsese movies. One of my favorite things is every time a movie has comes out, you get a great special effects reel afterwards where you realize an hour of the movie you just watched was shot on like sound stages and you had no oh, fucking yeah, idea yeah. Mm -hmm. um, because he's so great at using basically subtle special effects work to basically create like uh, uh, a, a sense of reality in, in spaces, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to creating unreal things in that reality. It's, he's literally just trying to make sure that reality is more like real, more suitable you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, well it's, it's a hyper reality, which yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that's definitely like something that's very present in a lot of, and at least in this, definitely movie, in Fincher yeah. for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think to, to kind of jump back to what we were saying before about this, not looking like San Francisco, the pictures that we have are kind of fantasy versions. They are heightened sure. versions. I've never been there. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, they're heightened versions, but that opening establishing shot, if it didn't tell me it was San Francisco, I would not have known. Yeah. Right. And I think I like how you, the, the way he uses this location, um, uses locations this movie, I'm going to liken him to one of my favorite filmmakers and someone who doesn't seem to get talked about a lot in terms of uh, the influence I think he has had on Fincher, and that's William Friedkin. Mm -hmm. Think about back to the French connection mm -hmm. where, you know, he shoots in New York, but he doesn't shoot in all the locations you expect in right. New York or Brooklyn. He, like, shoots under famous bridges or mm -hmm. in sort of, like, you know, diners that, you know, are off the beaten path or he'll shoot under the L as opposed to like on the L where you can actually see the city. Right, he's bringing you into like basically a different perspective yes. of a place that you might be familiar with in, but again, as mm -hmm. a view, as a movie viewer, probably like only a fantasy version of blah, 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 mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, now Freakin was using Yo, that. Cruising. In, yeah, cruising. <laughs> I yeah. fucking love cruising. Cruising is, that is great. Like, well, I mean, that of course, we're seeing a world that was considered an underworld at that yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But still, it's also, it's a New York that I, I don't know, Right, Absolutely. yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could get into arguments about cruising, about, you know, how it represents, you know, homosexuality and whatever. And, you know, and I should speak as someone who's, like, a dumb, straight, white person. So <laughs> I, you know, I'm not going to, like, you know, voice my own, you know, uh, like, reading in terms of how that movie represents homosexuality just because I myself don't really have that experience. Right. But I think, you know, with the with that movie in particular, I and we're getting really off Zodiac, but you could kind of relate the two I of think them that because cruising, and Zodiac cru have, cruising uh, more does than a sort of, of even predate Manhunter to have that sort of you know close um, close to the bone elemental view of someone getting uh, obsessed or like mm -hmm. going undercover in a uh, well in that movie it's in a culture that he really doesn't understand. Well, in a way Graysmith is going undercover in a culture he doesn't understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's a cartoonist. He comments on what goes on with the... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's not a journalist. He doesn't research what's going on. He mm -hmm. just makes a silly picture and does that thing. And so to Moonlight as this detective who you know, is almost not bound by the rules that the detectives are but is also you know Part journalist, part cop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's he's definitely going undercover in some type of way. Oh, absolutely. the uh, the other The other thing though with uh, Zodiac and locations is it's interesting that you know he'll even highlight you know particular street corners as if they're like a major portion. Like yeah. he doesn't even give any sort of geographical understanding as to where they are within right. the city. He doesn't have that sort of expository dump that you would get with some other. At filmmakers. the same time, too, I would be willing to bet like that one shot. Uh, like the Grand Theft Auto shot above yeah. the uh, the taxi cab, I'd be willing to bet just because this was relatively concerned with adhering to the facts of the case. Mm -hmm. I bet that's one of those details where that was the route that cab was on. 
Oh, absolutely. I bet that yeah. corresponds mm-hmm. to a real route, not just where it ultimately ended up, but that probably, you know, needlessly, but it's fun, corresponded yeah. to a real route. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's, you know, where, why I bring up Friedkin from earlier, I guess it relating it to like something like with Fincher's work, particularly this movie, you know. Now, of course, Friedkin was doing a very explicitly docu-realist visual style with mm-hmm. the French Connection, which was, you know, very inspired by like the films of Costa Gavras, like Z. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, this movie, I wouldn't say is docu, it doesn't have a docu-realism to it in its visual aesthetic, but it definitely has it in terms of looking at, uh, looking at either at faces or people performing process or even just the way that, you know, these people are have are, their psyche, psyches are sort of like realistically affected, you know, realistically, you know, but, but you get what I mean. Like there's mm-hmm. a sort of authenticity to the way these events are sort of protruding onto their sort of like lives to so that, you know, it, it completely disrupts their, their everyday, mm-hmm. their, you know, their everyday functions. I mean, the Gyllenhaal character gets so wrapped up into it that he loses his job at the Chronicle and yeah. can't even function. I mean, he loses everything he loves, or maybe not loves, but he loses everything that he had, uh, his wife, his kids, and all he has at the at the end of the movie is, you know, that sort of like, I mean, it's... He literally has a suspect that mm-hmm. he has no closure on. Yeah. That's yeah. what he's left with. Uh, mm-hmm. I really want to, that's really what I want to talk about most is the performance of John Carroll Lynch. Yeah. Um, that is that is unreal. He's great. Because every single scene that he interacts with the cops can be read two ways. Of a you know pedophile guy who's just sick and tired of being yeah. you know with the cops, mm-hmm. or the Zodiac killer who knows they ain't got shit and mm-hmm. is just toying with them, and both readings work. And that is you know I mean kudos to the script, but that is huge to his performance, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. which culminates to me in that one final moment with Graysmith seeing him, and this is Graysmith getting that attempting to get that closure. Where he said, "I want to look in his face and I want to know it's him," mm-hmm. and he looks in his face. And he is very sure, but not positive, can't be positive that mm-hmm. it's him, which is, oh, God, it frustrates me so mm-hmm. much to watch. But then uh, Lynch's reaction is he looks at him and has that face of like, is this guy recognizing me because he thinks I'm Zodiac, because he thinks I'm a pedophile, because he thinks whatever? Well, you know, I'm a fucking... Cr-. And he has all of those those... His face reads all of those moments of... What am I caught for? Am I caught? No, I'm not caught. And fuck you, you don't have me. Right. It's it's so... He also does an interesting... It makes my toes curl because it... it mm-hmm. I want I want to know who Zodiac yeah. is. Well, I also and uh, I'm not even that close to the case. I also really like the way he plays that character of Arthur Lee, um, mm-hmm. Arthur Lee Allen. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has this sort of like, you know... I almost think of him as sort of like... Uh, an invisible boa constrictor that's constantly wrapping around him. Like he's got this like very, cl- like he feels like all of his nerves are tight. Like, mm-hmm. th- like a thing of the way he postures himself in that chair or occupies yeah. that chair in the scene uh, with, um, Oh, the interrogation, in, in the interrogation scene, yeah. scene in the factory. I mean, you know, he's, his legs are crossed. Um, he has, a. I don't know if anyone else caught it. He has like, kind of like a slight effeminate manner to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just feels like he's, it, it, I mean, he's composed and I guess you could say he has a sort of relaxed uh, everyday demeanor, but it feels like it's all a performance. Like mm-hmm. it's a, there's a rigidity to oh, it yeah. that well, feels the, time. It calls into question of the why of the performance. Yeah, exactly. Because he's Zodiac or yeah. because yeah. he's... I mean, everyone gets or nervous around cops. is he just a cops. creep? Is he yeah. just a yeah. creep? Yeah. Well, he has that one, affecting, uh, that one part know. where he says, and, and um, he like gives up too much information that they didn't ask for and catches himself. Yeah. But mm-hmm. then I forget what the information was. He said, "Oh, it was that he was like, oh, and the 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 bloody knives in my car. That was yeah. because of a chicken that I had for dinner. Yeah. And they're all like, what bloody knives? He's like, 
Uh, well, the, I'm, I thought maybe you knew about that because yeah, the, mm-hmm. the other guys asked me about yeah. that. It's like, did you just fuck up? Yeah, yeah. Or do you know the evidence they have and mm-hmm. you're just dangling over the fact that you have a pretty plausible explanation for it? Right. That's actually ah, a so very good. interesting element, though, that's worth talking about at least for a minute, which is the fact that I like that this movie, if you want to look at it as a serial killer movie, jettisons the sort of mythic serial killer, the idea of the all-powerful, sort of like unstoppable, mm-hmm. uh, almost otherworldly super serial killer, or right. like, you know, super super villain, if you will. Uh, I mean, in this one, you don't see, you know, the sort of like conniving Hopkins-style Hannibal Lecter, who's got, you know, all the tricks up his sleeve, right. knows to deploy them, like has like Everything's it all figured out. Everything's yeah. so perfectly. Yeah. It's, it's almost as if that character has a time machine and can see into the future of exactly mm-hmm. how other people mm-hmm. are going to He act. also has the... Uh, Hannibal Lecter, at least, is when we come into his story in Silence of the Lambs, is mm-hmm. he he doesn't require anonymity. Yeah, he's caught. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Whereas Zodiac has to walk the like he can't be an aggrandizing villain like that because right. in the real world that doesn't necessarily work. You have to have that anonymity. Yeah, but also, but but I think what Fincher does, and granted, this is tied. Of course, this may be tied to the case in real life. I need to mm-hmm. do some further investigating, or at least reread Graysmith's book because I haven't read it in years. I think since. About the time this movie came out, I'd love but, to read it. But think about how uh, he peppers in those flaws and makes it so that the zero that the the Zodiac killer is nonetheless vulnerable to his own human instincts mm-hmm. of uh, human faults. He he, uh, the moment with the birthday when they call in, he says, mm-hmm. "It's my birthday. I'm mm-hmm. going to kill somebody," and it turns out to be Arthur Lee Allen's birthday. And I just bring that up because I think the movie is clearly indicting Arthur Lee Allen as the, oh, it uh, certainly mm-hmm. suggests. Well, yeah. I mean. Or the case, as I understand it, it, it if yeah. it's based on, like, as the case was studied, mm-hmm. he is the best suspect yes, that, yeah, that I mean, the investigation has ever come across. Indicting mm-hmm. may not be the right word, but it's at least clearly pointing a finger literally at the end. Oh, um, yeah, they're saying that, he you know, is... This, this has to be the person, yeah. because yeah. it may seem like circumstantial evidence, but, like, all roads just oh, lead back yeah. to this Even guy. Even that kills me at the end, though, is when he's like, and he had a round face like this guy, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's him, and it's like, yeah. fuck you, McPoyle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Drink your warm milk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really like that element in terms of characterizing the serial killer, uh-huh. which is he's not the all-powerful, mm. you know, person who who is, like, completely oblivious to human flaw. Mm. I mean, you know, there's, there's that moment with the birthday. Of course, there's the moment, you know, where he may have, like, dropped the ball in the interrogation mm-hmm. scene. Uh, you could even see that, watch that he has the zodiac watch on oh, yeah. it you know yeah. the fact that he would wear that you know and that's another thing too where it's like if i was the zodiac killer would i avoid wearing that watch right because it suggests that i'm him or would i wear it because it would suggest like yeah the zodiac would probably be smart enough to get rid of this yeah yeah mm-hmm. I, it, oh it kills me yeah oh, I hate oh absolutely it. there's yeah. um i mean it <laughs> My favorite serial killer. Uh, <laughs> I, I listened to a podcast that went through like a three episode arc about BTK. And BTK, interestingly enough, had gotten away with his crimes mm-hmm. and disappeared for a very, very long time. And they caught him because out of nowhere, he just sent another letter to the cop saying, I'm going to start killing again. Because he mm-hmm. did like a Zodiac thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Lots of letters. They couldn't figure out who he was. It turns out he was just a, and I'm air quoting, regular dude, mm-hmm. you know, as as it were. And... um it wasn't until whatever his urge was, whatever his obsession was, whatever his drive was to do this caused him to go, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write another letter. And if he was flawless and he was a supervillain, we never would have heard from him again. Right. Mm-hmm. It would have been like, you you did it. The yep. perfect set of crimes. But by sending in that letter, that was his birthday phone call. 
mm-hmm. it's ultimately what got him caught. And I don't know if I think he's still in jail now, unless he was executed. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Either way, scary shit. One thing that's definitely worth talking about that we really haven't His touched on is... fucked up. Yeah. Oh, man, it's fucked up. The way he oh. got people is... <laughs> Before at least going on to this topic of performance, because I'd like to talk about the performances here, I'll just at least mention for... <laughs> I don't say favorite serial killer, but I will say I kind of have that moment where I guess I, get, I guess become you know obsessed with... Maybe it's just because I personally don't feel the need to have any sort of like violent outlet in my life mm-hmm. um but people do it's pathological in some way that's oh i think it's part of human instinct it. i yeah. mean of course there's the sensor and we've cut become well i like to think that we've become more civilized although i think that they're like you know in this world we live in that there's clearly you know signif- human signifiers out there proving that you know there's no such thing as perfect civ- oh, civilization I, yeah. oh absolutely but you know i i think the reason why i find myself fascinated with i guess serial killer lore or um um, mythos is just because for me that's like a completely foreign oh yeah you know like i mean what I, makes someone want to eat brains and me mm-hmm. want to just go to work or even yeah. i think one of the more <laughs> or me want to just watch a movie about them wanting to eat brains like what <laughs> what, what makes me normal yeah and <laughs> or even i think for me like you know i guess i'm i'm all uh, i'm always very fascinated by the extreme forms of a like the extreme uh, extreme human impulse, or say the more extreme examples of human depravity, like at least in the serial killer realm, the one that I always like, you know, bring up is like the Albert Fish case, mm. um, which is, you know, for those who don't know, is like basically a man who was not only just a cannibal but also a pedophile, and of mm. course, you know, found ways to combine the two uh, practices. Um, and that to me is just an example. Like, a first and foremost, it's fascinating to know that there really is like a form of almost pure evil. Because mm-hmm. I guess for me, there really isn't anything more evil that I can conjure up at the moment that than like harming a child. Right. Um, in that particularly in that way. Yeah. Um, and then of course with like you know Albert Fish, you know you have to think that this was a real man that walked the earth yeah. and you know assimilated himself into a society for long enough that he could actually carry out these practices before getting caught yeah and i guess you know there's that there is that idea working at the the fringes of zodiac of how you know the specter of the zodiac i mean he here's this crazed man you know who is able to sort of clearly function in society and enough to the point that people weren't able to catch it and don't know who it might be walking amongst them and they just they can't tell Mm -hmm. they can't put a finger on it Mm -hmm. that you you said the specter of the zodiac that to me is like where this movie like really uh, lands like the thing that i i remember most about it and the thing that i think does sort of bring it up into the the top tier of these like 2007 movies that we sort of started this conversation with is this idea that it is a horror movie, mm-hmm. mm. even though it's not, but it is, but it's not, but it is mostly because it's, it is about the sort of this evil force that hangs over these men. You know, it, he literally does become a specter that ruins their life, that haunts their lives. Mm-hmm. He, oh, his, the murders were only the beginning right. of, of how far his reaches and went. It, and I think the movie, to, to me, I think one of the things Fincher is doing or trying to say with the movie, and he's not the only person to say this about serial killers, but I think one of the things he is is focused on is this idea that, it, it's exactly what you just said, the murders are just the first step. Mm-hmm. The the real goal of someone like this is not necessarily to take human lives. That's certainly something they're doing, but that's almost a means to an end. The end being 
to create this kind of chaos that will actually plague people. It's a power it's thing. Not it's a just power a, right. move. And it's not just to hurt the 12 people that he supposedly claims the deaths of, right? It's actually to harm thousands of people mm-hmm. that will be affected by knowing... I think he gets off on just someone. knowing he has yeah. such sway, exact power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Ugh. But <laughs> yeah, that's what's so... That's, to me, like, the scariest part of all but, of it. And it happens, too, like... We see it happen, like, remember when the snipers were happening? Right. And it's it's exciting, you know? It's mm-hmm. and not exciting in a good way, but in, no, yeah. in that it agitates the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the it it just shakes up normalcy. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there, I th- I mean, I, I want to, I mean, and th- this may sound, this may sound on, I'm sure I've already sounded like a weirdo to most of the <laughs> listeners here. More weirdos there, there, in this room, it's there, okay. There is, there is an exciting factor, I think, to anything like that. Absolutely. I mean... It's just part of our human nature. We respond to it with revulsion in our mind, but there is something I think deep inside our core. There that, was, you know, I mean, it, it's it's such a dumb thing to to bookmark, but man, oh man, was nine eleven was a scary, scary time. Mm-hmm. But man, oh man, how much like I don't want to say fun, but how much fun did we have at the expense of just the the oh shit, what's of it? You know, how much was I'll say, and this sounds cheap, but I don't. You'll know what I mean. How much entertainment value came out of that? Be it, uh, not necessarily fun, but just it wasn't. Things weren't normal for a little bit, so you had to be. Well, we on, became much. You know? It was like a snow day. Yeah, you know, it's it sounds like a snow weird, day. but it. I, that's a, but that's exactly yeah. the tone mm-hmm. where it's like something crazy and calamitous is happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, right? I was at the talk it, about it. Today you is things? different. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Well, I was only eleven years old when nine eleven happened. If you know, if we're gonna at least go on this tangent for a minute in relation, I mean. I mean, this is kind of different from Zodiac, but in terms of 9-11, to me, you know, that's the resp- the thing that I got from that, from being 11 years old and going through that time, was waking up to the fact that, you know, um, yeah, I can't put well, this. Just the, the idea of, like, you might not be safe. Yeah. I, you, you think know, you're yeah. safe, you might not mm-hmm. be safe. Well, yeah. the, you know, this, this, you know, as you, well, actually, safeness is really it, you know. You grow up with your parents thinking that, you know, they voice this idea that there's a there is, you know, they'll they'll be the guardian and protector for you before, you know, you eventually go off to college or leave the nest. And then of course there's but there's ne- it never dawns your mind that there's, you know, the like another world out there. Yeah. And maybe of course it could be just being an uncivilized child mm-hmm. or, you know, not really having the intellectual rigor to sort of understand, you know, um what's, you know, what's going on out there. Like I would say even even as 11 years old, like I asked the question, you know, why would someone do that mm-hmm. to us? And of course, you know, growing up in America, I guess during the 90s, you know, there was, you know, and, you know, there was sort of a, well, actually not the 90s, this has been in the 80s, like as a post 80s kid, there was still that sort of like, a, you know, American exceptionalism, Reaganism yeah. that was still pervading mm-hmm. culture, even though, you know, Clinton was in office and mm-hmm. the country was sway the pendulum was swaying back mm-hmm. to the left but you know nonetheless you know you grew if you grew up in that time you at least did have that instilled if it wasn't within your family household because i grew up in a household of you know very pretty very liberal people mm-hmm. you had that from other households oh, that yeah. sort of like idea of you know america first and then that and was the wake-up call that you know and our school system was very yeah. much like based in that kind of or at least mm-hmm. mine was anyway i felt yeah. like i got taught that kind of like american exceptionalism just in like history classes and mm-hmm. stuff i don't think any country teaches pride in it but mm-hmm. we just have demonstrably placed ourselves as the world's big brother and the idol yeah. to look up yes. to and whether that's fitting or not it certainly isn't right now but you know yeah it, mm-hmm. no but but we but we do have a past of it i mean yeah, it, yeah, it, it is it is just honestly it is you know 
I mean, you could look at it as a strength, but a lot of times it's very much also, you know, I think more prominently a weakness sometimes yeah. in our country, just as like our cultural psyche and mm-hmm. the way we react yes. not only to stuff that's happening in the homeland, but to stuff that's happening mm-hmm. outside. I mean, you know, there are some people, I guess, say, you know, like, uh, Actually, I won't like point fingers in particular, but that 9-11 to me was like the moment where, you know, you could say much like Zodiac uh, was for this movie where normalcy or that like yes. that That's what I was impression say, to tie it back in. Yeah. That impression of a well built structure mm-hmm. or foundation of a certain type of lifestyle, uh, community, neighborhood. There is a safeness to yeah. particularly suburbia because mm-hmm. even though this isn't, there is a lot of urbanity in Zodiac. There is, of course, the suburban, yes. uh, you know, elements of Vallejo. Mm-hmm. And with 9/11, it was just like you know, oh, like there is a world out there beyond that. That you know, uh, I don't want to like you know, as a kid, you think why well, you know what makes why is this like a form of evil to mm-hmm. us? Because of course, as a kid, you know, and maybe of course it could have been you know the um. I don't, uh, it could just be, I don't want to call it, uh, maybe it's just like latent racism in, mm-hmm. on the American, actually mm-hmm. I probably would say it's latent mm-hmm. racism in us, like about three Middle Easterners. You'd be hard pressed to find someone in America that is not affected with somewhat of a case of latent racism. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean in that case, you know, part of that was, you know, we, you know, it goes back to that sort of 80s stereotype of, you know, the towel head camel jockey. Yep. Yep. Um, and that kind of like, you know, as a kid, when you're 11 years old, you're kind of ignorant and you don't understand other cultures. You don't understand like why in this mindset, even though this of course is an extreme form of, um, of Islam, mm-hmm. why they would choose to do something right. like that. You just see them as the other, mm-hmm. much like the way that the Zodiac is yes. seen kind of as the other uh, mm-hmm. for some of this movie. But I weirdly think that the further you get into the movie, it's not that the Zodiac is normalized, but the idea of the Zodiac just seems to be sort of like an everyday thing. Like it's not just no longer just like some other murder. It's right. just become a part of life that they deal with. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that that's a lot of. I mean, I would imagine part of Fincher's desire to have this be this like very long, unwieldy, not unwieldy, but like windy kind of like narrative, is to I think put you into sort of the same psyche that somebody living in San Francisco at the time might have had, which is as we were talking about like it sort of starts with these like these big bomba- bombastic murders, these big moments that are very, they shake everything up. They're mm-hmm. very unsettling. And then from there, we move into this very rapid fire. Like, what is happening? How do we get a sense of like, where is our grounding? What is our footing? Things are moving so fast. It's getting scarier and scarier by the minute to, we're just going to skip over four years all at once. Mm-hmm. Because... Well, they even say it, I think Ruffalo's character says something to the effect of like, this guy killed what a handful of people. More right. people died yeah. in the last week. You know how many murders there were? Two hundred. Yeah, like, like yeah. there's a ridiculous amount of yeah. murders in this area alone, and we're worried about this. He calls him a clown. He's yeah. like worried about this clown. Like, yeah. and mm-hmm. I guess you ultimately do have to get. It's just human nature to get to that point. Yeah. Well, but, uh, but I also think part of what's going on there is, or at least for me, one of the things I read on the movie is this idea of he really did shake things up, and are one of the things that oh, we adapted to it. Yeah, one yeah, of the things we, that happened we just absorbed is, it. Yeah, we just we have to then absorb that and now that paranoia is just part of our everyday life, which mm-hmm. is not to say that it's actually like we're so good at adapting to things that now it's okay again. It's just now we are 
irreparably sort of psychologically damaged That's by the this joke thing. I always make. Mm-hmm. I still have yet to see the sequel to the zombie movie where there are no zombies, but everyone's just walking on eggshells because they know that zombies are a thing that can happen now. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Shit. Right. We, that we we just saw zombies. Right. Now that paranoia That's always an option. is just part of your your life. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. And this, this is why I brought up modernity when we were talking yeah. about ser- this relationship to other serial killer movies around. I mean, it's almost as if, you know, normalcy that's ultimately destabilized will eventually destabilize normal. Uh, a normalcy will eventually, at least in this movie and this eco, this, you know, uh, I don't want to say eco ecosystem, but th- this uh, certain brand of Bay Area society, ultimately they become accustomed to what is a normal, and that sort of itself becomes a form of normalcy. Right. They live. They you know they live and deal with the fact that there is this killer. You yep. know, the fact that you know they he's threatening to kill children on school buses just yep. becomes sort of like an everyday hazard yep. at that moment. Oh, yeah, well, they show the uh, there's that one great scene at the beginning where. Uh, right after he makes that threat, Graysmith goes to take his son to school, and his son's getting on the bus, and he kind of wishy-washes, and then he, you know what, I'm going to drive him, I'm going to drive him to school, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he goes to drive him, and then uh, there's a, a cut at some point that's two days later, and it's just him driving him to school that day, and it's not an exceptional thing that he's driving him to school, it's just, yeah. we are now, this is I now drive now. you to school. That's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh yeah. Yeah. Very good. Uh and I do. I think that that's kind of one of the things it's getting at is like, um, uh, I don't know, this idea that like almost generationally, like we're we're always introduced to these new evils, these new things that seem insurmountable, uh, and maybe we, I don't know, is there a point that we reach where it's we have uh, accepted so much of this a normalcy mm-hmm. that uh, and that we've adapted it and turned it into quote unquote normalcy that. We we just no longer we don't even know what normal is anymore. Mm-hmm. We're actually all living in like pure chaos and insanity, and like don't mm-hmm. even know it anymore. Well, I think we've we've always been in chaos. Yeah, and it's just we we cycle our monsters in mm-hmm. and out. You know, it's the it's the same monsters. Yeah, mm-hmm. serial killers come and go. Yeah, diseases come and go. They get cured. They all the you know, attacks happen. It's yeah. just that kind of a thing, and it. This is just one of those cycles in, in this movie. Oh yeah, well it's like that old Mark. I think it was Mark Twain who said that history doesn't repeat so much as it just rhymes. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's just mm-hmm. you know, it's almost yep. cyclical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, it won't like exactly repeat the same iteration, but you know, a different form will come down the line. Yeah. You know, you could look at it. You know, in terms of, like meet the all, new bus. Oh yeah. Yeah. Same I, as the old bus. And it's funny. That's the who baby. And <laughs> <laughs> not to bring this back to nine eleven too much, but yeah. if you want to look at it. Uh, Zodiac, which was made in 2007, you could almost see it, weirdly enough, as kind of like the, uh, not the last, but um, one of the significant entries in that weird sort of post-9-11 cycle of films that started up around 2005 movies that sort of like... um, this isn't like this. It's not very explicitly, obviously, about this, but right. I think you could read some stuff into it if you wanted to, because of course the two big uh, post nine eleven texts. Well, other than stuff like United ninety three or mm-hmm. Oliver Stone's uh, World, Trade, World Trade Center, Trade Center yeah. um, with Nick Cage, uh-huh. um, Academy Award winning actor, Nick Academy Award Nick Cage and uh, Michael Pena, mm-hmm. and if I remember correctly, yes, sir. Um, but you know, think of, I think of stuff like you know the key Hollywood post nine eleven movies. To me, the two big ones, both by the same director from 05, are Spielberg's Munich and Spielberg's yes. War of the Worlds. I was yes. just going to say War yeah. of the Worlds. Yeah. If not, the, we've yeah. we've talked about that on this show, mm-hmm. um, War of the Worlds, and it's it's ties to being a a post nine eleven yeah. movie. Well, that movie is very much about uh, without sounding glib, the iconography of mm-hmm. uh, of nine eleven uh, being put on uh, uh, in front of our faces as spectacle. Mm-hmm. Now, whereas you know. 
That um, sort of captures that movie captures exactly what I'm talking about the bubbling excitement of tragedy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And whereas some, you know, while some movies like say some of the, like the Michael Bay films, for mm-hmm. instance, like you know, whereas like Dark Side of the Moon, which not only recalls, uh, you know, I think, I think like 9/11 tragedy, you Dark know, Side of the Moon, or Dark, dark, of, dark the moon, of the Moon. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Transformers through Dark of the Moon. Yet they do say Dark Side of the Moon oh, yeah. in there. Yeah. Oh, of course. Oh man. Yeah. yeah, but Dark of the Moon, for instance, like which does have the sort of like iconography of 9-11 with Chicago basically just getting the shit beat out of it. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, but the, the unfortunate thing about something like that, and this, I'm going to reference Peter Labuza here, who's a, one of my favorite people on Letterboxd, a really intelligent critic, um, basically said that this is spectacle, but ultimately gives us that weird return to normalcy at the mm-hmm. end of, like, you know, playing out the sort of 9-11 style um, demolition is not the word, word, help me out. Um, destruction. Destruction, yes, mm-hmm. destruction. Uh, but ultimately, we come back to that safe yeah. place at the end, which kind of is offensive. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't also help that not only does he evoke images of 9-11, but also the Challenger explosion in that one <laughs> yeah, scene. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but then you have something like Spielberg, where even at the end, the very end, even though the family is reunited, you know, the world has changed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. those buildings, they're not being rebuilt. Right. They're, you know, the happy reunion is almost kind of like weirdly muted because, yes. of course, the divorced parents don't get back together, right. you know, thankfully. Yeah. And, of course, we do see, you know, the destruction that has been inflicted yeah. on, you know, society. Yeah. And there seems to be a much greater weight to it. And I think that's like a good example of a post 9 11 film in terms of the. Uh, the iconography, and then, of course, there's you know, Munich. It's kind of, uh, well, with War of the Worlds, I mean, this goes back to the original text, but the idea that, um, and I think they say it almost literally, is like, the aliens didn't earn their keep here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we have we have millions of years of, of evolution that gave us the antibodies that we need to survive. And if it's to be viewed as a post-9-11 movie, it's just kind of funny to think where it's like, uh-uh-uh, you can't have America it's mm-hmm. ours. We put in the time after we uh, did what you did and yeah. stole it from the people that are before us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but the interesting thing, if you do want to look at it like that, is, um, and this is more like a uh, the paranoia aspect. I'm of being that, cynical but... for humor's sake. I will oh, say. I get you that, know. but no, but I, and I don't want to sound like a wacko for saying this, but the interesting thing about that movie in terms of a narrative conceit is that the saucers the tripods had been there underground for years yeah yeah and that they were already sort of like colonized they were just waiting for the moment to sort of like come out and bubble up mm. which you know you know not to sort of like say that that's a literalization of something like within 9-11 right. and just sort of like i don't want to go on like sort of any sort of paranoia spree here but you know if you think about that idea of you know something that is sort of ingrained in this in that science fiction movie but ultimately you know it's we don't see it, but it's just sort of like part of the land, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sort of it takes o- it takes yeah. over. Mm. And then, of course, you know, there's something like Munich, which is much more intellectual in terms of the way it's a post 9-11 movie. Because, mm-hmm. you know, A, it uses, you know, a previous um, response to a terrorist. Uh, just basically, you know, uh, the kidnapping. Uh, and, just, and if you do want to look, it is an atrocity in some way, shape mm. or form. Um, but in that, it's more, you know, the judgment, like, is is it right to respond oh, yeah, to, to, to yeah. essentially go on a vengeance mission? mission. Yeah. And with Zodiac, at least to go get back to that, if you want to look at it like a post 9-11 film, although it doesn't have it's a much more abstract form. Yeah. It may, I may be going out of limb here. I, I don't think like you are, this. but I would mm-hmm. agree that it's certainly more abstract. Mm-hmm. It's more, you know, the idea of a significant event occurring that 
basically changes the course of the mm-hmm. way people live their lives, not just for that year, but for no destabilizing like it for a decade, years. basically. Yeah. yeah, or even actually no, fourteen years. Like this movie covers the ground from sixty nine to ninety one, mm-hmm. and people are still deeply impacted by this yeah. significant moment that you know. I mean, it is functionally as we define terrorism. That Mm -hmm. is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just doing something that causes people to make choices out of fear as opposed to Mm -hmm. out of benefit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to go over? Because I did think there's one thing I did want to mention before uh, we go off onto our list is uh, the element of uh, performances in this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, to me, this is like a good example of sort of classic 70s style ensemble movie. Mm-hmm. Like everyone for the first hour 45 is given like equal weight, more or less. They even I was paying attention to like things like when. Um, uh, oh, what's his name now? Uh, Dylan. Uh, Dermot. Uh, Dermot Mulroney. Yeah. D- yes, yes. Not Dylan McDermott. I, mm-hmm. I, I always get their Bill, names. Bill conflated. Pullman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pullman. Uh, <laughs> like when they introduce him, he just like walks into he, they They do one of those shots where like. He walks into a close-up. Do yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Uh, there are, like, the first hour of the movie, there's so many characters that they're trying to introduce and establish that some of them will be main players, some will be side players. A few of, like, the cops at the other stations we need to establish early because we're going to return to them, like, a few times throughout the story. They He does this great thing where he's just... The, with the. I don't know. They have these great performances where it's just like in two seconds, he lets you know exactly who they are mm-hmm. and so that you remember them distinctly for the rest of the movie. And they're always these, like really crazy just like basically like extreme close-ups on people's faces well and i wonder how many of these cops because they all play into trope is a strong word but they all play into a type of cop as we understand them Mm -hmm. to be also with the stereotypes that we ascribe to these street level cops Mm -hmm. um the ones that didn't think to interrogate the guy um all the way up to you know homicide detectives you Mm -hmm. know and so there's all these and i wonder how much of that is built into it by the functions of the movie and how much of that is perhaps that's how many cops are, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I would love to know what the real people behind this are actually like yeah. in a personal way. But I love that, you know, that these characters are functionally kind of tropes as they act in and out of of how we understand a, a police officer or a, a newspaper to work. Yeah. But they don't ever feel like that to me where it's like, oh, yeah, he's the hard ass. He, like, you gave them, like, the, the prickly pragmatists and all that. Mm-hmm. And so they that, that does exist. Yeah. But at the same time, like, these are real dudes. Yeah, yeah they feel you like know? complete people to me. They're not, they're not heightened. Like, the most heightened person is either Avery or Tashi. Mm-hmm. And... But at the same time, they're only heightened in the way that when I think of the 70s, it's it's heightened. Yeah, yeah. Um, like Avery's purposefully heightened. He's, yeah, exactly, yeah, he's posturing yeah. because he sees himself as this weird Hemingway. Yeah. And um, Tashi is, is, you know, he's always got a different tie than anyone else. When they're yeah, wearing long yeah. ties, he's wearing a fat tie. Um, when, the, when they're wearing... The bow tie. You know, he's got a bow tie. He's yeah. got suspenders. He wears that, you know, he wears the plaid pants and all that. So he's ever so... Slightly heightened, but not in a way where it's like, oh, this is Mark Ruffalo putting on a costume. Right. I I would imagine that a guy who's a good homicide detective might be a little bit atypical in that mm-hmm. way. You know, he mm-hmm. might be a strange bird. Or That's even cool. like the attention, uh, the attention to detail in terms of like, you know, we, we were talking about clothing here. The one that I like is the wardrobe choices for 
Jake Gyllenhaal, like, you know, the fact that, I mean, there's the obvious stuff, like, he he becomes more disheveled later yeah. on in the movie, and he wears, like, rattier clothes. They but, parallel him to Avery, basically, by the end. Yes. In his appearance, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the funniest thing is that he's, like, the, everyone has this sort of, like, sleek, stylish look to them for uh, for the time. Um, not that it's prettified, but it definitely feels, I mean, it feels like you're watching a movie. Yeah. Um, but and yet the Gyllenhaal character has the most unflattering like oh, yeah. clothes throughout much he, of it. He's always funny. got like he looks like he's wearing mom jeans uh, <laughs> and like a and then like a flannel tucked into mm-hmm. them that like is maybe a little too big for his for him. Well, mm-hmm. he's he's kind of it's only through his skill that he ends up becoming a focal point amongst his peers. Right. Because even at, even at the beginning when they're all kind of starting to talk about it, they're like, don't you have, don't you have a deadline? Oh yeah. They're constantly yeah, kicking sorry. him out of the room. Constantly yeah. kicking, but then as he starts showing, you know, kind of showing them up at what they're doing, yeah. at least with his ability to, to rework this information. And, and, you know, more and more people are in the news office when a, uh, yeah, when a yeah. new letter comes in. But as that happens and he becomes more and more of a big player, um, I think his wardrobe is used to show his shift from fish out of water to mm-hmm. only fish left in the water. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. If we can dive deep for a moment, because I think it would be fun to do a close reading of a particular scene. Let's talk about the scene between Gyllenhaal and Charles Fleischer, a.k.a. Roger Rabbit. Oh, that's yeah. such a great scene because it is... It, as an audience member, I see that and go, this is a typical horror setup. Yeah. Don't go in the basement. Yeah. And as a participant in the scene... Jake Gyllenhaal's character is almost thinking the same thing, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. but he has to go in the basement. And me at home, I'm going, as a viewer, I do want you to go in that basement. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I want to know what's in there, too. Yeah. But I, I'm not there, thank God. Yeah. Uh, well, the thing I like a lot about that scene is, uh, you know, there's, um, if you want to look at just in dramatic form, just like, lo- let's look at it as like a screen scene on the page and look at it and try, try to break it down beat for beat. I love like the sort of like slow lull into uh, sort of like comfort, like with this yes. very strange oddball character. Um, like, he, like he's, he's first introduced to us in shadow in the car. Uh-huh. We don't get a good look at his face. In fact, the first time we actually get a decent look at his face, it's not like a big reveal. Right. It's just, if I remember correctly, it literally is just him walking into his house. I think that's right. Uh, you, that's like, you see, that's the first time you see him in full light. It's well, not a close up. It's just a profile of them. Yeah. walking in and, and fincher has already established with the visual language of the movie that if somebody's face is encased in shadow they are the killer yeah like that's mm-hmm. the that's been established over the course of the movie but before we meet this guy mm-hmm. uh so when you meet him in the car and his face is so shrouded in shadow mm-hmm. you have you just as a viewer have an immediate inkling like oh this this is zodiac he mm-hmm. misdirects you yeah, yeah he mm-hmm. uses the visual grammar to misdirect you yep. Uh, and I, but I love how like you know he misdirects you first on like he kind of plays with you because he goes back and forth in yes. terms of uh, swaying where the audience's comfort is. Like first and foremost, you know when you see him in the car, pulls up, says "Follow me in your car." In, in shroud and shattered, you're like, as you put it, this might be the Zodiac. Yeah, come in. He's just. And I think Gyllenhaal feels that too. Yes, mm-hmm. he's almost cued into just being like, this could, this could be. Absolutely. And then they get into the house. He's just a weirdo. Yep. I mean, he's yeah. just a weird guy. He doesn't seem like he could harm anyone. Doesn't appear threatening. He just no. seems eccentric. Yep. Um, and then, and this is the the real achievement of the scene because, as I said earlier, it is amazing how much uh, suspense Fincher is able to conjure when we ultimately know that we will never know who the Zodiac is right. and this won't be resolved. There is that moment when you do learn uh, that the uh, that he was the one that did draft uh, those That's posters. That's my handwriting. That's my handwriting. Yeah. And that is like 
a turning point in the scene. Like yeah. a like first and foremost, the character Jill Hall has placed himself in a position where he kind of can't get out without obviously being yes, you know, awkward about it or mm. like letting on that yes. he might think something bad ill of the Charles mm-hmm. Fleischer character. I can't remember that character's name. I think it's Bob Vaughn or something like that. Something Vaughn, know. yeah. Um anyway that moment, the sort of like long walk, as I sometimes call them in thriller movies, the mm-hmm, long walk mm-hmm. down into the basement. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the few scenes where he doesn't actually give us a very clean geography. Um, yeah. That scene, I, I couldn't map you that basement, and I think mm-hmm. that's purposeful. Well, I, I, he does... He do, yeah, he, he, well, I think it, it's not that he doesn't give it... At least I think... This is what I think about that scene from a visual standpoint. I think that he gives us a geographical understanding of it, but what he does is he exaggerates the geography mm-hmm. because he plays with graphic lighting. He play actually. I, I, think, say I think it hints that there's lighting. more beyond that one path that we see. Okay, is yeah. kind of what I mean yeah. by it. Yeah. Because he shoots it again in a classical way. We have there's. Well, a you sense need to be able to direction. know that he can go in and yeah. out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's yeah. sense of screen direction. Uh, he doesn't like jump jump the line or anything. If you just want to look at like basic rudimentary mm-hmm. filmmaking techniques. Uh, it doesn't sort of like signal to you like that, but he's he kind of cloaks it in darkness. Like it's just like very simple top lighting. Like he, ba- yeah. if there is, if there actually, if Harris Savides, the cinematographer, did put, um, at least if I remember correctly, I believe it is Harris Savides. It is. Um, he if he does put any sort of like a studio lighting, it's clearly just there to augment. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a top light, but then he peppers it in with these expressionistic uh, flourishes, like underlighting, like yeah. dramatic underlighting. Mm. And this scene, I think, is uh, not just for it, uh, is a great example of um, screenwriting in terms of just like building a scene, building oh, yeah. tension, um, just like creating like the arc of a scene. Um, those rudimentary concepts to me, it also plays with the whole visual grammar of the entire movie. Yeah, we go from the sort of you know. Uh, very traditional Hollywood mode of filmmaking, you know, with three-point lighting, with some sort of shadowing around, like, you know, just because it's nighttime and they want to just give the idea that there's darkness outside of this uh, outside of this house, so it's just all being lit from uh, fixtures and practical lights. But then he completely just shifts gears at that moment when they say, come down to the basement, mm-hmm. And there's like a big graphic lighting, uh, low angle. Yeah, it's uh, coming low, up low, under yeah. his face. There's a yeah. low light yep. that comes up on his face, like you know, to sort of like yeah, it's almost something out of a, a 1920s, a, a 1930s horror film. Yeah, like a the German expressionist inspired Universal monster movies. And I love just how he sort of plays with form in that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just kind of goes all over the visual map. But they do an awesome, because that scene actually ends to me in a way that's comical. Mm-hmm. Um, when Jake Gyllenhaal makes it very clear, like, I do oh, yeah. have to go. And he's like, all right, then. And he cl- clicks the light. He yes. pulls the string for the light. And it shrouds him immediately in that darkness that Total suggests black. that he's yeah. them. Which is funny because, one, our horror brains go, oh, there's the killer. Yeah. But it's mm-hmm. also creepy because, like, you just turn the light off on yourself, bro. Yeah. And then, he, you know, we get the classic running to the door and yeah. not mm-hmm. being able to push or pull and all that. And so that shot's frame two where uh, uh, Fleischer is ever so slightly out of frame, but we have that reflection on the mirror in the mirror, background yeah. of it. And so when he has to do the stabbing motion with the key and yes. enter the frame, yeah. it is genuinely unsettling. You yeah. feel off guard. But at the same time, it's, it, it's Graysmith just like, 
he has to essentially stab at me with that key or I can't get out. Yeah, absolutely. It's terrifying, but it's it's comical because he ends up looking sheepish, foolish and yeah. like a panicked, you know, like a panicked dog. Mm. Well, he also as you put he put he kind of, Fincher weirdly enough kind of pepper some unsettling comic relief amid those horror moments there. Oh, totally. Like of course the uh, we talked about the you talked about the scene when he turns out the light in the basement. And that's kind of like a very presentational gesture. Mm-hmm. To me, the scariest thing in that whole scene is that close up of the key going into yeah. the lock because it it's it's a very it's it's subtle, but the implication being that there's that technically he could lock someone into that house. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. There is no, you know, fixture on that door to like just a or a deadbolt to sort of just right. like. Well, you, the you, slasher you movie out. fan in me <clears throat> saw that as just like, and I put the key in here, and my other hand stabs you. Yeah, yeah. like you're you're almost primed for that. The way you're primed for you know every car to get t-boned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, know, you you feel that coming. And not to sound like a too like too much of a Freudian here, but anytime I see a key, I have to sort of like you know look at it as you know. You could look at that sort of visual imagery as sort of like a violation aspect. Mm-hmm. I oh, mean, absolutely. I mean, yeah. not 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 like not to let's say that there's but like it is a though, sexual connotation. He's not allowed no. to leave yeah. unless he lets yeah. that occur. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so it's you know he could easily say like you know like you know stay away from me, but it's like no, I actually have to let you go past me and yeah. stab at yes. me with your key for me to even get out. Like mm-hmm. you are in control and I have to actually, yeah. I, I'm to struggling acquiesce. to gain control and I have to acquiesce to, in yeah. order to get what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's for that, those last two beats. Cause you know, we're talking about how they're comically f- peppered through there. Mm. That to me is the scariest thing. And yet he follows it up with one of the funnier lighthearted moments of that whole scene, which is <laughs> Fleischer just simply saying, have a nice night, Mr. Grace. <laughs> oh, yeah. Before shutting the door and almost like cracking. He a functionally smile. couldn't have been nicer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, he was being, imposed upon and and ended up you know being as helpful one as way could. you could read that scene is that he halfway through the scene realizes that <laughs> yeah, this right? kid <laughs> thinks he's zodiac and mm-hmm. just decides to fuck with him just have a little you fun, know what yeah. i mean like that is a way you could read what's happening there he's a bored lonely man he yeah. might just feel like doing that yeah absolutely did, did either of you guys catch there's a really strange detail in that scene that really adds to like the horror kind of feeling of it that I, I I just caught it, and it's it's fascinating that he even did this and let this happen. So after he turns the light off on himself and gets shrouded in darkness, uh, Grace Smith runs upstairs, right? He runs to the front door to find out it's locked. As he's making his way down the hallway towards the front door, you can see Fleischer behind him, like also, because, you know, he's going to be right there in a second to open the door. You can see Fleischer behind him. Grace Smith turns to walk into the foyer and, mm-hmm. like, go to the door. Fleischer just keeps walking directly past him the the opening to the foyer he goes he literally just almost like a ghost just like if and in the next shot he will have turned and made his way yeah, yeah, into yeah. this room right mm-hmm. but he literally just keeps going past the room like i don't know it's a weird thing where he almost looks like a ghost-like figure yeah, I know what you're like, about, yeah. he's basically yeah. walking in a way that like doesn't make sense and the next shot will establish that like it doesn't make sense he wouldn't have gone that way he would have made the turn but he but it, fincher like lets the camera roll like lets the edit happen so that like he he almost lets him walk out of frame when he shouldn't if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah it like adds this weird kind it of horror movie element too, to that it. he's yeah. just trying to get to the door first so he can let him out right well that scene is almost like the male equivalent of the classic euro horror image of the lady going down the the uh the um the hallway with the candle oh, yes I mean, yeah well even before the base they do a classic horror shot when he's like oh yeah it's in the basement you want to come down with me and it's framed where 
it's a close up on Gyllenhaal's face, yep. uh, you know, screen right, looking yeah. at the camera and the action behind him. And it's almost as if he's looking at us like, the, should I go? Do yeah. I go down this? Right. That's in every movie there ever was. Yeah. yeah. We could also talk about the setup for the master shot in the kitchen scene, uh, but which uh, uh, before we go down to the basement. Yeah. The camera's almost, it, it's not until you f- signal that uh, Charles Fleischer. Uh, signals that they should go in the basement that you figure out that that shot, the camera position is almost anticipatory of right. where they're ultimately going to go mm. because it hovers right around the area of where that door to the basement mm-hmm. would be. So it almost like, you know, and it kind of had, you know, you could look at it as sort of like it's a deliberate choice to put the camera there because it's ultimately hinting at where the next, um, the next area of that space that they're going to occupy is. Right. Because uh, most of the other scene uh, scenes in that uh, shots in that sequence um, are much more, um, they don't have that sort of, they don't, there's not, maybe not, a, I guess a structural idea to them. Right. Uh, they're much more complimentary. Like, It'll be tracking shots uh, of like Jill and Hall going down into the basement or like walking along there. It'll the camera will kind of, it won't have a narrational aspect. Mm-hmm. And narrational, what I mean by that is there's an idea of a narrative camera and invisible ca- and like sort of invisible style. Invisible style would be something like where camera movement either tracks with somebody. It'll maybe maybe the movement will be counterpoint to the movement of someone. Like say, if they're coming into the foreground, the camera may do a slight dolly in to get a, to bring them into more of the frame. Mm -hmm. Narrative camera is something more like a Hitchcock gesture, like something where the camera will maybe move the action. It'll seek out something and then it'll ultimately reveal Mm -hmm. like a piece of information. Uh, It's think of it as kind of like the visual equivalent or the movie equivalent of dramatic irony in a novel. Something um, where it's revealing something to the audience more than it's revealing something to the characters. Yeah, and this camera, this position, this uh, setup in the kitchen I'm, is not really like the camera moving; it's static, right. but it is nonetheless anticipatory of, uh, you'd say maybe the danger or a certain unsafe place in right. the house uh, that ultimately we will go into. Yeah, yeah and it, and it's also weird enough that that's the most sort of like traditional classical shot in the movie because a lot of the other shots, as you put it, are more expressionist. Mm-hmm. Be it, the hard close-up of uh, Gyllenhaal's face when he mm. sees the apprehension or the yep. fear in his eyes, or those shots down in the basement, which even if the camera movement is very um, classical in terms of the execution, is much more, you know, um, the fluidness of it's kind of unsettling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, I th- there was one other thing I did want to say, and I can't well, remember I have something that sort of to, to piggyback on that, because they do a shot that, you know, it's a little bit more boldly anticipatory of what's going on, but I think it's a great showcase for a huge amount of character work that Gyllenhaal is able to do just with his face. Mm -hmm. And it's when he comes home to find the note that his wife has left. Mm -hmm. And um, the the shot, we see the note, and he actually goes kind of behind it and around Mm -hmm. it. And so in our heads, we go, is that a note from his wife or is that a note from the Zodiac? And when he grabs it, he has like four distinct emotions, which is like, the first two are... This is, I'm either excited because this is a Zodiac thing or I'm upset because it's a Zodiac thing. Mm -hmm. Or I'm kind of just indifferent that it's a wife thing. You know, like he's got, (laughs) he's got, and when he reads the note, his first response is is just like, okay, I'm, I'm relieved that the Zodiac didn't take my family. But I'm also kind of pissed that it's not a Zodiac letter. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is my wife. I better flip it over to make sure it's not a Zodiac letter. And he flips it over to check Mm -hmm. the back too. 
that that's that is a huge amount of character heavy lifting that's done in about three seconds. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh man. But such a great a great crafted moment because we have all of those emotions mm-hmm. before he even gets to the note, and then we watch him have those emotions, and then I almost feel shame for having felt like that disappointment that it's not a because you're pretty positive it's a dear John letter, right? Yeah. You know, we're we're pretty positive about that, but you know, there's always that question and watching him do it and you go, man, you you actually got a little bit disappointed that the Zodiac did not take your family he in all- the way that you didn't get a new piece of the puzzle. And I felt that disappointment too. Shame on us. Yeah, you know? yeah. That, that's wild. He also, it's one of my favorite, I mean, it's really when you know exactly where that character stands mm-hmm. between his family and the Zodiac because he reads the note, Fuck, it's my family, they're gone. Flips it over. Ooh, Zodiac detail, gotta run. Yeah, yeah. He just immediately is back in. But in it, like, and within you just feel seconds. like she's, she's, uh, you get why she's gone. Yeah. You know, and, and, oh, at she the same says time, it. She says, we've been on one long date. Yeah. Because yeah. the date started with his obsession with the Zodiac yeah. and it never ended. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's what well, it's like, that's a great pickup strategy, though. Maybe next time I'm going on a date with a girl, I should say I'm undercover. No, no, no. Oh, no I don't no. recommend this. I don't recommend this <laughs> strategy at all, Dave. That didn't work very well for Simon in True Lies. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, don't don't go with that. <laughs> yeah. Bad, uh, bad strategy. Yeah. Um, I don't. I think I'm. I think I'm zodiac out. I'm ready to do a list yeah. if you guys yeah. are. Let's list it. I think that if you don't mind saying the one yeah. last thing, I would like to say about zodiac, just because I don't think we got a, a, a word in about, it, is I like how at the end of this movie. Fincher offers some sense of closure. Mm-hmm. We ultimately don't know who the Zodiac is. Mm-hmm. Zodiac, excuse me. Mm-hmm. The Zodiac is. The movie clearly seems to have an idea of who it is, but I like that it does. And I mean, it just takes it to the logical endpoint for mm-hmm. that Graysmith character, which is he has decided who he believes the yes. Zodiac is, and that seems to be a gesture that's uh, meant to basically convince himself to provide closure for himself. Yeah in his own sort of delusional state that he's in. I mean, granted, you know, as the postscript, uh, the end, uh, the title, um, the the title cards at the end tell us, you know, of course he was able to have like a decent relationship with his kids growing Mm -hmm. up, but the movie ends on such a weirdly kind of defeatist note that it's gotten to the point where he is just so obsessed by this, you know, it's no longer about the Zodiac as much as it is about just his own obsession mm-hmm. that he's just way able to well, will himself to gain the compared idea. to what he has yeah. lost. Yeah, because even that one note where it's like he swears that he never got another call the whole time that um, you know that that uh, Alan was in jail and then right. ultimately died, and you know you could read that you could read that in the way of like, well, that is all the evidence we have. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is that's the best we can do. But it's also you know this is from his source novel, which is like. It is the most, but that's pretty good. Yeah, that's, I think I figured yeah. it out. I don't know, but I think I, you know, like yeah. it's there's a little bit of ego stroking. Well, there. And, absolutely. And, uh, we we talked about that a little bit, and this is maybe a good place to close. It is that is also I think like it's a he comes to that realization a little bit later than Ruffalo does. Mm. Ruffalo comes to that realization a little bit earlier because there is a point where Graysmith comes to him, presents more evidence that does pretty comes very close to convincing him that like. Uh, this Lee Allen guy is who they're looking for, but he stops short of saying that yes. because yeah. he know because he knows. Well, I already convinced myself of this once before, and my life spiraled out of control. What he's telling me could very well be true, but I might only believe it because I already convinced myself. It's What's true. the line that he says you know where I mean? he's like, "That's good," but I can't get him. And then right. Jill and I was like, "But it, 
but it's enough. Or like he right. says something to the effect of like, but it is enough. And yeah. he's like, it's actually not enough. Right. You can't I, it is it. enough for right. me, but I can't I can't yeah. run with that. I can't get yeah. him on that. Yeah. So it's not enough. And he's and it's just to that notion end. of like convincing yourself like that's the only way out is to just go, I, I have to have an answer for me. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Good discuss good blah, good discussion, fellas. Yeah, yeah that, that was good. good. Yeah. So what we decided to do, keep it simple. Um True crime movies. True crime. Some of our favorites. Um, the Ooh, caveats yeah. that I threw in there is if we did an episode about it, uh-huh. um, I, I didn't put it in there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if these are my favorites, but these are ones that I would like to talk about. Yeah. I think in the interest of it being 1130, we should probably go through these somewhat quick. Let's just hit them quick. Yes. Why don't we each just throw our list out, like, one at a time. I'll just go, these are my five. Dan, you're five. Dan, you're five. And then let's just pick a couple and, like, really talk. The ones you really want to talk about, we'll hit them. Sure. Um, I'll start with mine. I, Goodfellas is on my list. I know we did an episode on it, but it turned out I've only really seen like four true crime movies. So Goodfellas is on the list. Uh, these are the more interesting choices. Catch Me If You Can is uh, one of my favorites. Honorable mention. Yeah. One of, just, a, I think, a really fantastic movie that uh, grows in my estimation the more I see it. Uh, knock, knock. Yeah. Uh, I Love You, Philip Morris. Did that end Yo, up on anybody's list? I actually just recently watched it's that. It's good. That was mm-hmm. actually what I believe Jenna and I watched on Valentine's Day. Oh, no shit. Yeah. That is a delightful movie. Yeah. I love you, McGregor. I should go back and watch that one because I hated it when you I know saw what, it. it. The thing it's that not I, like it's the greatest no. movie, mm-hmm. but it is just, there's not really anything really like it. I, yeah, I can't mm-hmm. compare it to anything else necessarily. And. Great late career Jim Carrey performance, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is good in the movie. Yeah, I Although think he's I very good. Th- I think he's got the more. Um, I think it's me. He's got the more showy role. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, although I think Ewan McGregor is the one that is actually the real uh, dark horse. I, I would uh, agree that Ewan McGregor is actually yeah. the best part of that movie. Yeah. But I think he's as far the as sympathetic like, part of the yeah. movie, mm-hmm. yeah. I think as Jim Carrey roles go, it's one of his better performances. Oh, yeah. Actually, he doesn't yeah. talk out of his butt. Right. Yeah. Which I mean. I'm not saying don't do. But that's classic Jim Carrey. That's classic Jim Carrey. I love (laughs) that stuff. Now, this one I think will be only on my list. Alpha Dog, that make anybody else's list? I've actually not seen it. Alpha Dog, I believe also from this year, by the way. If not 2007, 2007, it might be 2006. Uh, I would like to see that, and it's been... I just never have. I got. I only saw it once. I was in college. I could be misremembering it. Or, you know, my interpretation then might be very different from what it would be now. I really like that movie. Like, I liked that movie a lot. It's a really, really interesting crime drama that... um, uh, bummed me the fuck out when I was, you know, 20 or whatever I was when I saw it. Well, no spoilers, because yeah. I do want to watch it. Uh, it's good. Uh, and then uh, this one might be on your list, Dan, and I feel like it's one that we'll both really want to talk about. Bernie is probably my favorite. Mm. Bernie's True my number movie. one. That, that's, yeah. that's my number <laughs> one. Bernie is yeah. my number one. Yeah. Um, so we'll get there, but yeah. That is I, a phenomenal I flick. really like Bernie. So those are my five. Well, uh, I had number five I put on here simply because it gave me the experience uh, gave me an experience that I couldn't possibly have with Zodiac. Yeah. Because knowing Zodiac was unsolved. Yes. Um, uh, you know, that that's part of it. I mean, yep. that's part of the experience of watching this. But there's a movie called Memories of Murder. Oh, yeah, I've heard and of that. And it's a oh, Korean yeah. movie. Um, I think it's Boon Jong-ho or maybe Bung it's Bong Joon-ho. Yeah, um, it's one of his. And that was one where it ended. And I was like, wait a minute, aren't they going to get it? I didn't know it was a true story. Uh, I was like, what mm-hmm. the fuck is this? Yeah. And then it turns out, like, that's Korea's Zodiac story. Oh, interesting. That is yeah. their unsolved mystery yeah. that no one knows. So it was like, at first I was like, oh, fuck you. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's a true story. And then yeah, yeah, yeah. I went down the wormhole and I graysmithed it. And I want to see that. Interesting. Um, my number four is a six-minute short film that I saw on a trauma dance DVD called The Psychotic Odyssey of Richard Chase. Okay. And it is a short documentary that profiles the life and crimes of a truly demented 
a serial killer, deranged lunatic named Richard Chase that is done entirely with a Ken doll. Okay. And it is scary as shit. Yeah. It's really scary. So it's the serial killer version of... um uh oh, the Todd Haynes Barbie doll movie. Uh, yes, yeah, Karen um, Carpenter story, Superstar. Yes. Yeah, it's like that. It, we could even watch it. It's 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 one where it's like, oh, this is silly, and then it ends, and you're like, oh man, I should turn the lights back on. <laughs> yeah. you know, this is, uh, there's a lot. Like Richard Chase's big thing was, if your door was unlocked, he read that as I'm allowed in. Uh. If your door was locked, he would always move on. And I always think about that every time I lock my door mm-hmm. ever because mm-hmm. of this movie. Uh, number three is Monster. Um, oh, Charlie Charlie's Charlie's Theron. Theron. Jenkins film. Because they did something very interesting in that movie because they didn't necessarily cover her specific murders um, because she had a fair amount of them. But there was this one guy that she, you know, uh, he pulls over because she's on the side of the road. Her, did you see this movie? I did yeah, not see it. Okay, she was a prostitute mm-hmm. who would pick up Johns and kill them. Okay. That was the Eileen thing. Warnos. And Eileen Warnos. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, there was one guy that was like, hey, can I just help you? Like, mm-hmm. you obviously, and she gets in, and she pulls out the gun on him, mm-hmm. and is like, I'm definitely going to kill you. And he's like, he wasn't going to purchase her or anything. Yeah. But his whole thing is like, no, oh, but please don't. I, I have kids. I have my wife. What will they think? Yeah. And what I loved about that was it represented this idea of he knew that if she killed him, his memory would be tainted by the fact that everyone thought he was buying a prostitute yeah. when he was doing nothing. He was trying to be helpful. He was yeah. doing the exact opposite. And I liked that to the relatives of her victims, that cast a little bit of doubt into the idea that their loved one that was lost was buying a prostitute. Right. And I I just thought that was such a nice, necessary thing that I don't think any movie would ever consider. Yeah. And we don't know if that's the case. A lot of her victims were just dudes trying to get some but there's a very real chance that someone just tried to help her and their their legacy was tainted by that idea that they were cheating on their wife or just Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. that always sat with me where i was like man that's that made the movie that much more fucked up but it also made me appreciate like what a crazy kindness to offer offer to these victims through through this movie that's interesting uh number two was dog day afternoon i still have not do i need to say anything and number one was Bernie. Bernie. Oh, I also excellent. put as honorable mentions, not a movie that's great, but a movie that I enjoyed, Wonderland. Oh, yeah. And then a I movie about that, that is largely not um, true, but a lot of fun was Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, yeah. I uh, I had a similar thought about like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, quote unquote, based on a real story because sort of it, but not real. You know, I, mm-hmm. I had a similar thought about that. Ed Gein mythos. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw this out there. Jenna asked that I read her list, and oh, they're please. all repeats except for one. But she went with Party Monster, Dog Day Afternoon, Catch Me If You Can, Wonderland, and then Monster at number one. I heard Party Monster is real cool. I want to see that. I've not seen it. Yeah, I, I saw that one years ago. I don't remember it. Too, uh, I don't remember it too too well. I was uh, part so of the probably, Macaulay Culkin resurgence, right? Yeah, mm. the Macaulay. Uh, yeah, the Culkin one of the famous song. stories yeah. from that is that he had to teach Marilyn Manson how to smoke because <laughs> Marilyn Manson plays a smoker in it, yeah. and just didn't know how because yeah. like he's relatively clean cut yeah <laughs> it's like he had to teach him how to do it That's which funny. is something that if someone doesn't know how to smoke in a movie you could tell yeah mm-hmm. all right so my list uh um, please here comes five movies i've never heard of yeah. right <laughs> no, I, actually we'll do we'll do we'll get the early one out of the way dog day afternoon yeah I, I did have that on my list uh that's uh one of the few sydney lament movies i honestly really like i should say i'm a i'm a i'm a complete uh 
heretic because <laughs> I actually don't think Sidney Lumet is a great director. You are a heretic. I know. Yeah. I am. Oh, I absolutely am a heretic. <laughs> um, but I think to me... Have uh, you ever seen Before the Devil Knows You're Dead? I have, and I like that one. Um, and I, I really, I really love Prince of the City. I think that's okay. also um, 2007, by the way. Is it? Yeah, oh, it's you know 2007. It is. Yeah. I, we should do... I we're doing love, that. Yeah. 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 I, I don't think the end of Before the Devil Knows You're Dead does it too many favors, but I do like it enough to recommend it. Um, but I've like never been sold on Serpico. I, I, I really like Network primarily for the screenplay. Mm. But I guess for me, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about, Pauline Kael and the Erector Set approach to filmmaking, uh, although it's a different thing with Lumet, I, oft, I ultimately find that he kind of like will take, you know, scripts and... I just see, I find his drama to be a bit too blunt. Like he'll either literalize something to the point that it ultimately deflates the conceit beneath it. I can see that. Uh, although I do think he's, I mean, that's he's really invalid. good. At You're actors, still a heretic, though. but that's yeah. not invalid. Oh no, no, and that, yeah, <laughs> no. I know. It's, I mean, hey, hey, it's Dan Santelli being Dan Santelli. What more do you expect? <laughs> that's why we have you here, man. We <laughs> need this shit. Um, I like everything. I hope you've noticed. Oh, no, I love and, it all. And as I've said I before, I didn't care for King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, <laughs> but I like everything. Hey, we'll always ha- we'll always be the fellow haters of. Uh, um, hey, I've even forgotten the title, Collateral Beauty. Oh, Collateral <laughs> Beauty. I mean, <laughs> that means enjoy that, the club. That, that is actually episode worthy because that is like, even though it is, I think, one of the worst films of the past few years, that is a special kind oh, of Oh, it's mind blowing. Yeah. yeah. That's like, it sounds great to me. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that that many people signed off on yeah. that many just fucked ideas yeah. and it got made it's oh it's 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 like how did this how did this happen how did this get made but yeah uh dog day afternoon not really much to say it's it's probably lumet's best actually i i would say it is lumet's best film uh you know brilliant street shooting new york uh the great john C- late late great john cazelle's in it as al pacino's um partner in crime and also partner in real life mm-hmm. and um or in the character's life oh, and chris sarandon runs away with that movie <laughs> he is awesome in that movie he is uh, although i, I think and lance hendrickson <laughs> <laughs> well, i i don't think that's just a great showcase for al pacino um oh, yeah. before he got you know even though there's a lot of broad gestures and like uh the sort of like whoisms that we would come to associate with the pacino style of they're grand more naturally unhinged there as opposed to him doing his own Pacino impression. Well, they have immediacy. And yeah, part of yeah. it is just because that character, I mean, you know, the crazy thing about that movie is, you know, in, in, is the character, you know, is ultimately what the character is doing is he's robbing the bank so he can get the money for his uh, partner's um, mm-hmm. sex, a sex reassignment. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to, you know, look at that character in the sense that this is not just some sort of man screaming about. I mean, he really, like, and part of it is just because he loves his, you know, his boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And he wants to, like, even if it's a desperate act, he's going to follow it through. And he's going to, like, rise to the occasion in the manner that he needs to be. So that performance, to me, is oddly naturalistic, even in its, uh, you know, the very broad Oh, uh, yeah. emotions that are very much there like the Attica Attica scene stuff that like shit. that mm-hmm. so yes Dog Day Afternoon don't really need to go on it too much more um, uh, the other one I haven't seen this one in years but I absolutely loved it as a teenager is uh, I think Peter Jackson's best movie Heavenly Creatures uh, I've actually never seen I've never that. seen when that. I was researching this Ooh, that popped yeah, up on popped every up list Heavenly Creatures I mean I, I was going to give a little thing about it, but I would say just go watch Heavenly Creatures. Yes. Oh, I'd love to. It's 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 beautiful. It's like very you know for a movie that is you know for what it's about. I mean, it, it, it's probably not giving anything away saying that it's about murderesses, but it's it's very empathetic. It's a very interesting movie about identity, a teen identity, um, adolescent sexuality. In this case, you know, people discovering le- uh, lesbianism. Mm-hmm. It's real. It's it's oddly touching and poetic for a film that's you know ultimately has you know 
is about the darker side of humanity. Right. Um, okay. Some of the weirder ones. Uh, I, I'm a, I'm another person I'm a skeptic on is Larry Clark. Uh, but I absolutely love Bully. Uh, his 2001 uh, that's film. That's another one that I, I keep kept almost on putting lists. on I and I just it. never, it's, it's been on Netflix since the entire time I've had it and I oh, just man. never watch it. Watch Bully. I mean, that's it's, it's soul crushing and it doesn't really have a particularly flattering view of, uh, youths as uh, a lot of, you know, as like, you know, uh, that's another whole thing basically. <laughs> well, the weird thing is, you know, Clark is really good at sort of like photographing youth bodies bodies uh in space mm-hmm. and also just like the he's really attentive to the um well, that's the how everyday. he started was his photograph project yeah. of, mm-hmm. of tulsa tulsa yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um but of course you know he he does love to sort of explore the darker side or say I, the vapid side mm-hmm. uh, how modern culture or society has basically turned these kids into more or less wasteoids mm-hmm. uh, and that's very much at the heart of bully uh just seek that out it's excellent um it also has a really uh Twist is not the right word. A very, a really good but kind of unusual supporting performance from Leo Fitzpatrick, who uh, was probably best known as Tully from Kids. Mm, right. Okay. Um, he was on Gotham oh. like two seasons ago. I haven't. I've not watched Gotham. I, it's one of those shows that like I just can't stop consuming, <laughs> and it, it really found its own stride. And if it's something that you're into, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it has its ups and downs, but it's out of all the superhero shows that I thought I'd watch and stick with i never thought it would be this one and it's the one that's <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i know most of you guys know that i'm not i'm not the biggest fan of superheroes but i'm curious to watch some of these television series that are you know sort of spin-offs of either the mcu or mm. um in the case gotham just inspired by dc comics and batman just because i know a lot of people really like them and i know several people who are not big on the superhero movies who really think those are something special i've heard uh, those cw shows are quite good that's like yeah, Arrow and uh, uh, The Flash and mm-hmm. uh, Legends of Tomorrow. So I've actually heard that those are very good. Subject for further investigation yeah. on my end. Yeah. And the last two that I'm going to go with, at least on my recommendations, I guess is kind of a double header, that uh, double feature that goes back to the, um, which is actually about terrorism. Um, the first one I would do is Olivia Sayas. Great, great 2010 uh Movie, miniseries, whatever. Carlos about Carlos the Jackal. Oh. Now that I'm obsessed with Personal Shopper, I need to uh, I need to go back and watch Carlos. Personal, I've not seen it. Personal Shopper is amazing. Yeah, that is like that. That for me is I've all. It's I. I still need to catch up on a lot of the 2017 stuff, but that and Song to Song are movies that I saw earlier this year that I feel are actually going to be out. Like definitely going to be on my top ten of nice. the year. I thought like yeah, I know I'm I, I'm not ready to to forgive. Uh, Terrence Malick, I know Knights of Cups, and I did not like Knights of Cups either, but I'm glad the Song of Songs sort of brought me back. Um, I'm curious, like, it interests me, but, like, I don't want to get ten minutes into it and be like, well, fuck, now I have to finish this shit. Because, <laughs> like, like Knight, Knight of Cups was, was unrepentant bullshit. <laughs> and within the first three minutes, I was just like, oh, fuck. And then it was, like, two hours long. There's nothing worse than that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't hate Knight of Cups. I just thought it was like a not very good. Like, so it was kind of like, it really just felt like Malik just being honestly kind of like lazy. Art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, art, you know, or as as uh, it was the or, best or, sound cue that's ever happened on this show. That's that's a Jennaism. Like yeah. describing a play that's like, oh, I'm in a play. It's like, <laughs> oh, that's that's not art. That's art. <laughs> or as the British film critic Mark Kermode says, it's art with a capital F. Yes. <laughs> uh, and the last one I will mention uh, 
in, oh, actually, I'll just say, yeah, but definitely seek out Carlos. Carlos is great. Please watch the miniseries version. I know it's five hours long, but just please make the time for it. I remember when that came it out and all of that. amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I would like to see that. Yeah. The OPEX uh, scene in particular is just like a great piece of direction. And the last one uh, is we're going to go back to the 70s here. Uh, Costa Gavras's film State of Siege. Uh, this I've never one, heard of that. This is a film um, that is based on a real case. Uh, in, I think it took place in Uruguay um, about a uh, U.S. diplomat, uh, Philip Michael Santori, who was kidnapped uh, by uh, a terrorist cell and basically was uh, held as like for a ransom, to mm-hmm. refer a ransom charge. Uh, I won't go into too much about it, but it's Costa Gavras doing his usual thing. If anyone out there has seen Zed or Z, uh, his 1969 film um, about the Greek... Um, well, it's basically about um, the fa- fascist Greece. Um, it's uh, it's got that same sort of docu-realist mode to it. This one, oddly enough, even though it's a uh, much more, uh, it's a little where where it might trip up is it's a little obvious in terms of uh, the uh, the stuff that should be much subtler or sort of like a more subtextual. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's very much explicates uh, yeah. the sort of like situation, particularly in terms of some of the associate associated the associations it makes between the corrupt government or the sort of like government that's not functioning well mm-hmm. with uh, the terrorist cell itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's very, very good. Uh, Yves Montan is uh, the lead in it and he's just fabulous. So that's my list. State of siege, bully State dog of th- siege. It's going to frontline bully. I keep I almost got, watching it. But keep I that. Don't. So have you ever seen Bernie? I've seen Bernie. Yeah, yeah. I saw it when it came out. I thought that was really good. I really like that movie. Bernie's excellent. Yeah. Not only is it like a showcase for like Jack Black is not just a flash. Yeah. Hey, he's he's legitimately good. It's such a neat structure. The whole idea of using real documentary people and reenactments only for the function of just like what makes it the more entertaining movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just love the idea where. Everyone's like, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, he definitely did it. But you know, <laughs> it's Bernie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We love him. There's something so unique about that as like a true crime, you know, because true crime does tend to deliver these sort of um, uh, ser- very serious-minded movies, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's well, Bernie jettisons the whole doomy portent right. that sort of is at the heart of a lot of the true right. crime movies, and it just sees the. The uh, you know the the guilty as sort of a cuddly teddy bear type figure, <laughs> mm-hmm. but also it like kind of takes you to, it brings you to where he got there. Like, I don't think there's any circumstance that's gonna push me to kill somebody, right? But like, I wanted that bitch dead. But <laughs> <laughs> it's just like they made her a very villainous character yeah. mm-hmm. to the point where you could understand people in his town just being like, well, yeah, he did it, but we do love Bernie. He is yeah. wonderful. She was awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was, yeah, yeah. you know, and so it's. You can actually see how he got there and how that reaction. Yeah, it's happened. a really interesting conceit because it's like it sounds so unbelievable when you say, "Yeah, there was this uh, town where a guy just straight up murdered a lady. Everybody knew it, and the town just said, Don't try him. Don't. Yeah, we don't, don't even want him to like go to court for it.' It's uh, it sounds so unbelievable, and then you like, you know, you sort of watch the story unfold, and you're like. I kind of buy how this happened. Yeah, this is exactly. pretty wild. It occupies a very interesting sort of like ethical gray area. Yeah, in that yeah. Although I, I don't know if I'd quite say villainous for the the, Sh- the Shirley MacLaine characters, and just I because would say just an irritant in she, a way that you, yeah. when you go, oh, I'm gonna kill this person, yeah. even though you don't. Yeah, maybe that maybe this isn't on the page, but it's definitely there in the McLean performance, which is you know there's that old classic Jean Renoir quote. Jean Renoir is in the French director who made mm-hmm. the rules of the game and Grand Illusion, in which he said about his villains, you know, everyone has their reasons, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and it seems as if she just has hers for yeah. why she is the way oh, she is. I mean, 
It may I may not be on the page, but McLean definitely and oh, sort of lived in she's great in vibe in that movie. Oh no, she's excellent. Yeah, yeah, she's not an empty villain who's just a cold hard bitch, but right. you know, it's but it's it's one of those where it's like I've met people like her, I've met people yeah. like Bernie, maybe not so much to the point that that mm-hmm. what happened that, happened. Yeah, that situation. Yeah, could but it's like I've met yeah. people like I I know them and I could see how them yeah. being mixed into a into a uh, petri dish later, right? It is link later. Later and uh, early reconnaissance. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of this it shows up as the sheriff. I remember yeah. correctly. And yeah. I will say the last word on that movie is it's very interesting how it sort of plays with the audiences. Um, how would I, they identify or see their themselves as like find a character for their like self image projection? Mm-hmm. Because you know we love Bernie throughout. Yeah, I mean it introduces uh, we're introduced to him singing in a car. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With that love lifted me. So yeah. which is, I mean who couldn't love who couldn't oh, at least like so love yeah. that guy? And then of course you know it puts us on the side of you know hating uh, the McLean characters. Thing oh man why is this why is this old bag just being like terrible at everyone? Yeah. And then of course there is that moment when he does shoot her. Yeah. And we ourselves as the audience sort of have a moment of recognition of the fact oh this person that we've identified with or have empathized with this whole time is really a cold-blooded murderer. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we still do like him, but it calls into question, which is, well, who who yeah. are we meant to empathize with? Right. And, and I'm not saying that as a deficiency. I think that's part. That's one of the things that movie's doing in terms of presenting that sort of borderline you know, mix of documentary and fiction mm-hmm. style is how we relate to this um, the, the, the people of this region. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, and, and just that idea that, like, you know, uh, we would tend to, as an audience, gravitate towards who we see ourselves in. Mm-hmm. So if we have already gravitated to Bernie and then it turns out Bernie is a cold-blooded murderer, what does it say about us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, You know what I mean? Yeah. We, we have already taken him as our surrogate. And yeah. So now what is that? How does that actually reflect back on, on And the us? movie does play with sort of, like, audience complicitness much more interesting than, say, like, a movie like Michael Haneke's Funny Games, which, you know, which basically to me is just, like, a movie yelling at you. <laughs> um, you know, where, you know, whereas, like, this movie, like, sort of, like, it, it, it leaves it up to you, like, do you feel still feel as if, you know, Bernie is, you know, I mean, of course, the movie still sees him uh, not just as this weird oddball, but just as this likable man who made a very bad mistake uh-huh. in his life. And we do nonetheless see the, you know, the long haul, the punishment yes. that he must mm-hmm. endure. But it's just interesting as like an ethical question for us as viewers, voyeurs, if you will, yeah. of how we st- we feel at the end about Bernie, because yes. we may still like him and want him to get off the hook. Kind of like we do for Norman Bates for a num- uh, quite a bit of Psycho before mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. learn of who he really is, but you know we're ultimately haunted by the fact that we just uh, kind of still empathize with this man. Well, we know he's capable of getting into a, a a fit of enough passion that it mm-hmm. could end up with right. someone being dead. Yeah, and oh, one of my favorite things is the way that movie ends in the closing credits is Jack Black visiting Bernie in oh, jail. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's like. You, you get a sense of that warmth. You get a sense of the idea, like, he's totally cool with this story being made, and mm-hmm. he wants, you know, Jack Black to play him, you know, as, as properly as, as imaginable. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like Bernie a lot. I'm glad we got to yeah. This is I a good excuse gonna... to talk about that. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm just going to throw this out there because it popped in my head while we were doing it. I don't know if it's the best movie, but it haunted me. The Snowtown Murders is an Australian oh, true yeah. I still need to movie. see that I movie. See my, that. Friend, my friend Pat Fucked really up. loves that movie. I mean, it's... It's one of those where there's one scene in particular that I just I can't shake like it's mm-hmm. it's really horrifying but in, in an effective way but it's it's a pretty interesting 
because I didn't know the story of it going in, so it's actually tough to figure out who is ultimately going to be our serial killer and who's, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's just one of those where you see this volatile situation as it all happens. You're like, man, I that's fucked up. And I could see how these people got there. Yeah, like, yeah I could yeah. see how it happened in this circumstance. It, it's wild. I must admit, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of bummed that it wasn't a, a serial ki- list of serial killer movies as a as in I I kind of wanted it to be serial killer movies as opposed to true crime, just because I'm still looking for an outlet where I can babble on about the New York Ripper. For have you guys seen, seen the seen New York no. Ripper? Mm-mm. Oh man, it's kind of like the most evil film ever made, but also like one of the most joy like. <laughs> it, it, Joyous is not the right word. Yeah. One of the more perversely entertaining films, yeah. Lucia Fulci film from nineteen eighty three. Sounds like an episode. Right. It's uh, it's it's simultaneously one of the most amusing things a horror uh, a horror fan can watch, and probably one of the most horrendously misogynistic films ever made. Oh boy, it's, sounds lovely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, oh, I mean, I'm I'm down. Yeah, I'm down. I mean, if you've ever seen a Fulci film like The Beyond or Zombie, mm-hmm. uh, I always you, wanted to see The Beyond. Kind of, oh, The Beyond is amazing, yeah. man. But yeah, it's 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 pure unbridled id lizard brain right up front <laughs> being it's oh, him being horrendous yeah. <laughs> that's, that's my life man speaking of that should we uh, end on some recommendations oh please yeah mm-hmm. do you have any dan um i don't fucking know uh, um, <laughs> i'll hit a quick one uh i watched uh just because i like plugging these now that i'm doing it I watched uh, uh, s- something strange, something now I can't even remember something what it was weird. called. Something weird uh, by Herschel Gordon Lewis uh, for Splatter Matters over on uh, farsightedblog.com. Uh, and uh, something weird is truly something weird uh, that I think I can recommend. I think uh, get some beers and watch it with a few friends, and it yes. should be a good time. It's weird as hell, but uh, pretty funny and dumb and crazy. Last night I watched a movie that I very much enjoyed, Chuck. Um, the oh, yeah. Chuck Wepner story, the story of the Bayonne Bleeder, the, uh, oh, the yeah. inspiration to Rocky. And um, it's pretty cool because whereas most boxing movies are about someone cleaning up their life leading up to a cathartic boxing match, this is about a cathartic boxing match that sent a man into a downward spiral of destruction. So it's a inverted uh, uh, boxing movie. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, it's just a, it's co-written by Liev Schreiber. It's a hell of a performance oh, from him. Mm-hmm. And Jim Gaffigan, awesome in the movie. Yeah. Cool flick. Jason Jones is in it. Oh. He's, he's awesome. In it. It's it's a cool flick. I saw um, that. I saw that movie actually at TIFF last year when it was okay. still under the title The Bleeder. The Bleeder. Oh, yes. I want to see it again. I, I I thought it was not very good when I saw it, but I must confess I'm not a big fan of biopics in general. Okay. Um, see, what I liked about it is that to me it was a it was an atypical biopic mm-hmm. in that it doesn't really ever make occasion to apologize for this guy's destructive behaviors. Yeah. It very much just, you know, as I understand it, tells it how it happened, but um ends up earning our forgiveness of him through his own uh, internal arc. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's just, it's kind of stylish. It's a lot of fun to watch. It's not terribly long. I enjoyed it a lot. Cool. Cool. What do you got? All right. Well, I should mention, because I know I don't even think I got to mention my full name at the beginning of the movie. Dan Santelli. I think Santilli. we got yeah. you a good intro. Dan Santelli of Viva Video. So I'm going to plug a few things that we got at Viva recently. Um, we, for those of you who may not know, Viva Video is, as far as I know, the last the, remaining video the store the on the planet. Re- yeah, not quite the planet. We still <laughs> got Scarecrow, Vulcan Video, and I Love Video down in Texas, uh, yeah. or of course, Scarecrow in Seattle. But, um, but yeah, we're at least the last in this area that I can figure out. If there is another uh, video rental store, please uh, send Throne to me. 
tomatoes to daniel.santelli at gmail.com. Um, so uh, a couple things that we just got into the shop that's worth mentioning. Uh, in case you guys don't know, we are located at 16 West Lancaster Avenue in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Um, one of the things I definitely want to plug, we'll do some art, we'll do some uh, great exploitation, then I'll go on to a few art films. Right, uh, we should do these fast because I'm tired as shit, and I told uh, people that I would be near them like a half hour ago. <laughs> Absolutely. No, yeah. Sorry for keeping you guys. <laughs> no, it's all good. Uh, all right. So uh, two ones, Julie Darling. We just got that in the store. It is a great 1983 exp- uh, exploitation film, as I call it. Electroploitation <laughs> as in the Electra Complex. Um, it is exactly as it sounds. The tagline is, uh, I'll pull it up here because I have it here. It's too good to mess up. She's sweet 16 and she simply loves her daddy. She'll slaughter you if you love him too. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's a lot of fun. That it, promises yeah. some murky ethics. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony Franchosa is the totally oblivious dad. Uh, Sybil Danning, the B-movie queen herself, is in it. And Isabella Mejos is uh, the titular Julie Darling. Uh, that is definitely worth a rent. Uh, you can check that out at Viva Video. Uh, the, I don't think it's... Uh, it's not streaming in a decent copy. There is a copy, I think, out there on, AI, on Amazon, but it's. I think it's ripped off of a, of a VHS tape. Uh, so the, the other one we got at Viva Video that I highly recommend, Seating of a Ghost, uh, dug this up last uh, October. It is a Asian uh, Hong Kong horror film that is absolutely batshit and by turns uh, amusing and also kind of horrifying in uh, <laughs> non, non-PC ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, goes from in one scene uh, showing a, a lady who is <laughs> being uh, attacked and uh well, well, she doesn't. She doesn't get raped, but it's these two ruffians who are two would-be rapists, mm. uh, not doing a very good job at it. But it decides to spice up the scene by having her fall down the steps and have banana <laughs> yes. sounds in it. Banana sounds, <laughs> like banana slip like sounds. Swoops? Yeah, yeah, yeah like. <laughs> um, and then we go into like scenes that are like some of the like most incredible category three level violence you'll see in a Hong Kong horror film. Uh, there is a scene of a creature that clearly is uh, a form of the xenomorph an alien except mm-hmm. it's got a real life head inside of what looks like a venus flytrap <laughs> style uh uh creature yeah that's all i'm gonna say seek this movie out what's it, it called seeding of a ghost all right if you enjoy that also look at my compadre miguel gomez's favorite the boxer's omen uh one art film recommendation. Uh, you'll have to seek this out. Uh, I'm a big fan of Robert Bresson. He's one of my top three favorite filmmakers of all time, along with Antonioni. Um, his film, uh, A Gentlewoman, Une Femme Douce, uh, is new to me. I watched it last week. Uh, I don't think it has ever had a, t- a release here in America besides a New Yorker VHS copy. Uh, please seek it out. If you enjoy Bresson or if you've never seen a Bresson film, this is probably not the one to start with. I'd recommend Ohazer, Balthazar, Mouchette, or Largent, Largent of which will be coming out in Criterion in July. But Une Femme Deuce, it's the usual wonderful Bresson thing. Uh, Dostoyevsky in the best way couples sort of who we know is incompatible from the get-go get together and we kind of just see the tumbling of their relationship Mm -hmm. and the last one i will mention that is for not just philly fans here but for everyone across wherever you're listening if you're listening in the uh, united states um the janice films re-release of stalker by andre tarkovsky the great tarkovsky maybe the uh, probably the third of those top three directors um is is coming out uh i've seen the I've seen at least a, a, a screener. 
it looks amazing. Yeah, uh, this movie, uh, which go. unfortunately with a, has you know had a very rough history, has had a lot of bad transfers. It looks like I mean the clarity is incredible. Please go and see it on a big screen. I can't uh, wait. Definitely, yeah. You know, if if you're maybe not like a a usual sort of art house moviegoer, definitely get a good night's sleep beforehand because it is classic transcendental filmmaking. It is slow. It is very contemplative. It has almost a stream of consciousness feel throughout the middle of it. It's simply just. A man who is a stalker who guides these people into a cordoned off area called the zone ferries this professor and a writer over there just so that he can show them this place that's called the room, uh, which hmm. is a sort of enclosed enclosed space in which uh, the pe- uh, the unconscious desires of man are fully realized. Hmm. It is a. Uh, it's. I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but I mean, it's a masterpiece. It's. It would. It's easily in my top thirty favorite films of all time. It's. It's. It's just great. Um, you can actually find me rambling on for probably about six or seven hundred words on cinadelphia.com about that movie next Friday. Awesome. And that's what I got. Gary, do you have any? Thank you. No, I uh, tossed one out there earlier. A little something, something weird. Oh, yes. Uh, Excellent. Yeah. Uh, which you can find on farsideblog.com. Let's plug it up and get out of here. Uh, you can Let's plug yeah. it up and get out of <laughs> okay. It's really late, fellas. Yeah. I think. Yeah, for, uh, for <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Filmadelphia. It's with an F. Uh, I'm on letterbox.com slash Filmadelphia. Also with an F. I uh, review every movie I watch there. And uh, you can find my series, uh, Splatter Matters, where I'm reviewing a bunch of Herschel Gordon Lewis movies over on farsideblog.com. I'm at Dan Scully on everything, Letterbox, Twitter, all that fun stuff, Cinadelphia.com. Uh, that's where I do a lot of my reviews. And um, you can find us at I Like 2 Movie, the numeric two, on just about everything. Yeah, Twitter, uh, Facebook, send us a review. Five-star review lets you pick our yeah. upcoming episodes. So do, do that. Find us on iTunes. Do that. And if you don't do it, I kill your family. So that <laughs> deal is still in the works. Dan, where can people find you on the internet, my friend? Well, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, my full name, Dan Santelli, S-A-N-T-E-L-L-I. My avatar is Morris the Cat at the moment. <laughs> so you can feel free to friend me if you don't think I'm too weird after this podcast. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm terrible at Twitter, folks, but you can nonetheless follow me at Cineas. That is S-I-N-Y-E-A-S-T-E. And you can also find me on Letterboxd. My, arm ha- my handle there is Kempo Courage, uh, or you can just put in my name, Dan Santelli. You can read all my weird stuff that I put on. <laughs> there i try to watch at least one movie a day i'm shooting for 400 this year but having a nine to five is kind of interfering with that but you know everyone needs to work yeah and i'm glad i'm working that's life um, my friend but yeah thanks for having me on folks oh, so thanks for coming man this is, uh, yeah this is a true pleasure my name yeah. is Garrett Smith. it's always good to have you on here so oh, thank was, you very much i was fellas. just i just got scooped that there's a boondock saints tv show so oh, yeah. i'm just spewing anger oh, all over the internet you should do some research about that by the way it's being funded through crowdsourcing, oh, where the God, packages are thousands of dollars for you to get like exclusive things that are the kinds of things that would only come out when something had already been produced. But it hasn't been produced yet, and you're putting the money in for the... It's crazy. You have to look this up. It's the it it literally seems like a tax dodge of some kind. It's fucking nuts. I'll say it this way. I don't know anything about it, and I hope that everybody involved with it gets a tumor. <laughs> Poor That's Sean. where I'm at. Poor Sean Patrick Flannery. Is he, he involved in it? He gets a pass if he's on it, but I don't. Is he involved? I don't think so. I, I will say the two lead actors they yeah. get a pass oh, yeah. because I'd be in a Boondock Saints yeah, yeah, movie. Yeah. I'll be in any movie yeah. you throw at me. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, but fuck that shit. Yeah. <laughs>
It, you should look it up. It'll make you even more angry. Troy Duffy. I, I got to sleep tonight. I, I don't think I can look it up tonight. Look it up save, tomorrow. I'm going to save it for tomorrow morning, yeah. and I'm going to have it with my coffee yeah. and just be good yeah. to go. You'll want to watch that documentary all over again and be like, why, why would anyone pay money into this when this guy is who's... <laughs> okay. Because yeah. people are just like, yo, fuck, that's what we need, dude. We need yeah. some fuck real boondock saves to just clear up the streets. <laughs> right. Let's sign if it off. If those kids a, had guns, they wouldn't have gotten shot. <laughs> I said, let's sign it off on a high note after that Boondock Saints <laughs> rant so we're not here plugging each other, plug, plugging up everyone's ears. All right, everyone. My name is Karen Smith, and I like the movie movie. I love how you've just conducted it. It's beautiful. My name is Dan Scully, and I like to movie movie. My name is Dan Santelli, and I most certainly like to movie movie. And we all know that you like to movie movie because we, we like, like to movie. movie.